Good evening, everyone. I am Joseph Ford Cotto. Joining me tonight is Patrick Basham, the head of the Democracy Institute. Patrick, how's it going? It is going very well, Joseph. Despite my enemy's best efforts, we continue to uh, move forward inch by inch. And it is once again a pleasure <laughs> to be with you and your fine audience. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. And Patrick, before we get into uh, what we're going to discuss, which is fascinating, uh, explain what the Democracy Institute does and how it relates to the subject matter of what we'll be talking about tonight, which pertains to tobacco. Sure. Well, the Democracy, Democracy Institute is a think tank, a public policy research in, in organization, uh, politically independent, uh, funded by donors, uh, individuals, corporations, no government money. Now, some people might say no, no sane gov rational government would give us money, but uh, even if they would, we wouldn't take it. Uh, we have an we're an eclectic bunch, uh, generally right of center, free market, mix of conservatives and libertarians and and populists. And so we do policy, public policy research. We write books, publish reports. Uh, we hold conferences. Uh, we write for newspapers, do a lot of media appearances. Uh, we do a lot of polling, increasingly public polling. And we cover, you know, we, we cover the waterfront in terms of issues, elections, campaigns, a lot of foreign policy, a lot of economic regulation, a lot of nanny state lifestyle uh, public health issues, which is how we get into the uh, tobacco and nicotine regulation issue, uh, which we'll be discussing a fair bit tonight. Uh, so we, I suppose, one we come at things from an evidence-based perspective. That's our stress. We're very concerned about how science and economics and business and regulation has been politicized, not just here in America, but uh, throughout the Western world. And we think that's a very dangerous trend. Uh, we've always been railing against the ills and the dangers of the nanny state, uh, which I think we saw uh, come to global fruition in, in much of the COVID uh, policy response. Uh, and so you could say that increasingly we're seen on the contrarian side of issues. We think we, you know, we're where we've always been following the evidence and following logic and rational thought, but increasingly that puts you on the contrarian side of issues when it comes to, you know, the political establishment and the, the regulatory state. And uh, you did mention your enemies before, and they are legion, uh, but uh, some of them are, are angry at the democracy too because they claim it is too uh, sympathetic toward tobacco-related interests. What do you have to say to people who bring that up? Well, our, our, our approach, as I say, is to follow the evidence. So if we think a regulatory proposal um, sort of by, by any co rigorous cost-benefit analysis, it doesn't make sense. The costs outweigh the benefits. Uh, often there aren't any apparent benefits. Uh, then we'll uh, speak out about it, write about it, talk about it. Um, and uh, often there are unintended consequences, not just in this area, but across many areas where governments choose to regulate uh, the private sector. Uh, they, they have no consideration of, no awareness of, and no concern for unintended consequences, which is often where, you know, the, the devil is in the, those details and where the rubber hits the road in an unfortunate and very tangible way. Uh, when it comes to tobacco and nicotine, and the tobacco, the tobacco industry, and now the nicotine industry, the two overlap, but they aren't identical. Uh, they have been, you know, receiving the brunt of a lot of public health legislation and regulation and prohibition um, over the last couple of decades. And therefore, naturally, 
our, a lot of our attention, not most of our attention, but a lot of our attention has been on those issues. It is the, the, the nanny state sort of took on tobacco first, had a lot of political success, if not a lot of, uh, I would say, policy success. And has branched out, encouraged by that to take on, they took on big tobacco, they took on big food, uh, you know, big pharma, big alcohol, uh, big casino and all of that. And so we've covered all of those issues. And what we find, sadly, is that the same model applies. That is the model of, uh, you know, we don't like a certain industry or we don't like some of the outcomes, the negative outcomes as we perceive and measure them. Uh, so therefore, we're going to either, um, from our point of view, unnecessarily overly regulate those industries uh, or those behaviors at the consumer level, um, or we're going to tax, to tax them out of business or tax them to a ridiculous degree. Uh, in some cases, actually try to prohibit those activities or limit the opportunities to engage in those activities. And in, in nearly all cases across these industries, across these consumer uh, interests and behaviors and preferences, we find that Typically, governments, whether they're in Australia or Canada or the US or the UK, they generally, not always, but they generally get it wrong. They either they, they sort of manufacture a crisis that doesn't exist, a public health crisis, or they are led, they are persuaded that one exists where one probably doesn't. And, and then they apply, therefore, over the top prescriptions to to solve that crisis. Um, or even when, you know, when a crisis, they apply the wrong uh, prescriptions. Uh, so it's a, it's a sort of it's become kind of an old and boring but really more important story by the year because you know they just move on down the path and come across another industry that can be in their point of view taxed or regulated or knocked over and this sort of cottage nanny state cottage industry continues we have government bureaucrats you have the public health establishment outside of government which is often funded by government you have academics researchers uh, non-profit organizations ngos uh, you have and then you have global organizations like the World Health Organization, part of the UN, which is very much lead, has very much led the charge on many of these issues. Um, so we find ourselves um, continuing to do what we hope we do best, regardless of the policy area. And that is to speak truth to power as we see it, obviously imperfectly. Uh, and we can hope to continue to get better at what we do. We don't always get it right. Uh, but most of the time, I think we do. And I think history shows that we have, uh, you know, but the the folks who um, are used to a uh, used to not having to debate anybody, not used to being challenged, they find that in whichever country a challenge comes to them, particularly an empirical one, they have a real problem with that. You know, it's inconvenient, it's unfortunate, it can be it's embarrassing for them, so they tend to ignore it. They tend to do sort of straw man exercises to dismiss the institution or the individual bringing those uh, critiques, uh, bringing that that feedback. Um, and so it just sort of goes with the territory. Uh, but uh, we think uh, that in the area, for example, of tobacco and nicotine, that the evolution in those industries in terms of the products that are now available, or at least are available um, to some degree, but not as widespread as we think they should be, uh, that, um, they're, that the industries have evolved to to snowy suit consume evolving consumer taste but also to meet the quote-unquote public health requirements of uh, reduced risk products and that's something that we have always encouraged studied and attempted to explain to policymakers and to ordinary consu regular consumers about the opportunities 
that are out there to improve public health. Um, but it's for ourselves and those around the world uh, of a similar mindset and a similar approach. Um, it's an ongoing day to day battle uh, because the message, our message is unpopular with um, much of the public health establishment around the world. And therefore, not only our message, but the messengers themselves um, have to be criticized in order to minimize the opportunity for our critique and our prescriptions to receive, you know, a, a full airing uh, in the media, among politicians um, and among the public. It's, uh, I was going to say, when it comes to, to the tobacco industry, I have a unique uh, perspective on it because of my father's side. My family made its money in tobacco uh, historically. Uh, my paternal grandfather was the last one to grow up on the family plantation. Uh, he uh, rolled uh, cigars. He helped uh, with any facet of, 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 uh, of day-to-day life that was uh, required. My great-grandfather would take the family tobacco from the Caribbean to sell it to uh, folks in New York City. It was really, uh, it was really interesting. But uh, yeah, tobacco is an industry that I've never seen a dime from, nor has my father and my grandfather left uh when he was still a teenager so he obviously didn't make out from uh, from that uh from that industry either uh he didn't even take advantage of some real estate he was entitled to uh when the family plantation went uh kaput in the in the 60s which <laughs> aggravates me because things could be very different for me if he had but anyway uh it, it looking at, at the situation uh tobacco is an industry that's been around for a very long time and it's not something that can just go away as a lot of people want. And I say this as someone who is, uh, I was going to say fanatically, that might be a little strong, but I think other people probably say fanatically opposed to, to smoking. Uh, I, I dislike seeing people smoke. Uh, I've never considered doing it myself, not even vaping. Uh, but uh, all the same tobacco or chewing tobacco, it's the same thing in my book, maybe even worse considering what does to the gums. But anyhow, um, the fact of the matter is, is that this stuff's not going anywhere. It does serve a purpose, however uh, destructive it might be. And, uh, you know, it's just a fact of life. So when it comes to looking at the tobacco industry, I don't look at it from a point of view of, you know, this is like demonic or this and that or the other thing. I think it's like so many other uh, products or it's like so many other industries that produce products that are not uh, the beneficial, particularly over the long run, but people want them. And I think if people want something, they should be able to buy it as long as they're not hurting others in the process. So, or, you know, uh, taking from others, that sort of thing. Uh, and so it's it's really, uh, it, it's really my, my perspective on the tobacco industry is nuanced because it's, like I said, traditionally served my family well. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I, I hate seeing people smoke. So it's something that I'm really of uh, two minds about. Uh, and it's uh, it, it certainly is fascinating. I'll put it that way. Uh, I, I When I see a, t- a tobacco being grown, I don't feel the same way about it that I do when I see people smoking them. I look at it being grown. It's mm. even though I never experienced the the family plantation myself, it's almost like nostalgic in a way, uh, and it sort of feels like home. Bizarrely, when you see those large leaves, but at this, uh, you know, then you think about what is going to become of those leaves and how mm. people will uh, inhale them with tar. Uh, and it's 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 uh, certainly nothing heartwarming about that. Uh, so it's, you know, like I said, it's a complicated issue for me. So I'll just throw my perspective out there without any reservation. Uh, now, looking at the article you wrote, it's titled A Good News Story, and it was published in Tobacco 
reporter. And uh, it is said tobacco harm reduction has made more progress than is often assumed. And I'll just start reading a bit of the article. The good news about tobacco harm reduction is the bad news is wrong. The tobacco harm reduction experience is actually a positive story. It is true that the preponderance of influential and well-funded public health institutions and stakeholders are rapidly anti-tobacco harm reduction, THR. The World Health Organization is the most clear-cut example with billionaire philanthropists funding global campaigns that, in concert with the WHO, incentivize national governments and their public health agencies to either, either to ignore or to disparage THR's demonstrated ability to improve public health. Now, Patrick, uh, explain a, a bit about uh, tobacco harm reduction, how it relates to the tobacco right. industry, to people who consume tobacco, and obviously to those uh, in the WHO. Right. Well, the, the, the notion or the principle uh, of tobacco harm reduction is that is to explore, uh, it was initially, to explore the, the question or the hypothesis, can tobacco or uh, you know, tobacco-related uh, products be produced that will uh, put the consumer at less risk than they are presently, or they were. Pre they were um, in terms of the, the you know the well-documented health, long-term health effects of tobacco of smoking combustible cigarettes. And so, if you fast-forward, um, you know, a lot of number of years and, and and billions and billions of, of R&D money spent by tobacco companies, you find you put yourself you, you arrive at a situation a sort of 10, 15 years ago where uh, it became apparent that the technology existed to produce tobacco and nicotine products that uh, no longer carried with them most of the, uh, say, well-documented health uh, effects, ne negative health effects of smoking combustible cigarettes. So there's, there's three main um, examples uh, of these, these sort of categories. One is um, e-cigarette, e-cigarettes or, or, or vapes, as the industry would prefer to describe it, which is it's not a tobacco product, it's a nicotine product, right? And um, Public Health England, the main public health body in the UK, has documented for years that um, if you vape, you reduce the risks, the health risks that um, you would have uh, experienced by being a combustible cigarette smoker by about 95%, right? It's pretty significant stuff, which is why the British government and the National Health Service has given the rubber stamp of approval, uh, stamp of approval to um, e-cigarettes. Uh, and therefore they are regulated and um, dealt with by government in, in England in a very different way than in many other countries, including Western countries. Uh, the second category are heated tobacco products, which are a tobacco product, but it's heat, they referred to as heat, not burn products. And the fact that the, the tobacco is heated and not rather than burnt um, reduces significantly uh, the, the health uh, effects, the negative health effects that a, a, a consumer uh, would, would experience. So you're talking, depending on the product, et cetera, you're talking about, you know, the sort of 80, 85, 90% uh, uh, health reduced risk uh, area, which is obviously an overwhelming uh, benefit, positive outcome. And then you have the smokeless tobacco products, uh, which have been around, many of which have been around longer, most famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, would be uh, snus, 
and the products you know the uh the products that are put um you know uh, uh, on one's gum or sort of under one's on under one's um, lip that sort of thing uh and and, and snoozing is uh wildly popular um with wildly uh, positive health outcomes in terms of reduced risk vis-a-vis -vis smoking combustible cigarettes in those countries where it's been permitted um so the technology and the investment of money has allowed um, the industry in terms of both, quote unquote, big tobacco, you know, the, the traditional big multinational companies, but also a huge number of small companies, especially in the uh, e-cigarette vaping field, to develop products um, with a great variety of options and flavors, et cetera, um, to make those available will be in a position to make those available to consumers. But the ability of those entrepreneurs and those large companies to make, to, to make those products actually available in the marketplace to consumers um, has been a, a very big story and has very tremendously based on the, um, the jurisdiction that, that the ones that one is living in. So governments, generally didn't know what to do at first and in some countries sort of let things go while they figured it out in others uh, they kind of tempted to put a stop to it right away you know most politicians these days their first instinct if they don't understand something is to be prohibitionist about it right is to ban it before something terrible happens rather than um, let it happen naturally and see what are the pros and cons and regulate and tax accordingly um so it's been it's it's been a very sort of heterogeneous response uh in the west and around the world to these products they've come online at, you know at different times in different ways different companies have focused upon one or more of these um sectors or segments of these new these new products and depending on the markets in which uh, company X or company Y is dominant or trying to move into. Um, that's played a, a role in, in which company has moved furthest with which product. Um, but the companies themselves um, have all, you know, the, sort of the major, the, you know, talking about, you know, Jap, uh, Japan Tobacco International, Philip Morris International, British American Tobacco, Imperial Tobacco. Um, they, they have all made very explicit um, commitments to, emphasizing more and more uh, these these reduced risk harm reduction tobacco and nicotine products uh, in the case of um, Philip Morris making you know very uh, aggressive uh, predictions about how little of their business they hope um, comes from the traditional combustible cigarette market and how much they want to to be perhaps exclusively in the tobacco harm reduction area and this has been met in, uh, by many, when I say consumers, I'm talking uh, almost exclusively about current smokers, right? Mm -hmm. You have, you know, some, some smokers enjoy smoking, suffer a few health effects, or they, they are aware of at this point, uh, and, and they have no interest in, in, in switching or into quitting. Uh, some successfully quit on their own or, or with assistance. Um, some find it very hard to quit, and, and some of those would like to to move to a reduced risk product. You have to remember that smoking is, um, that there's a physiological 
there's obviously physiological downsides, but there are physiological benefits, at least in the short term, you know, to the nicotine. It's, you know, the old story, not the old story, the old story in a medical, technological, physiological sense, but the new story in terms of what people are aware of, you know, is that um, people smoke for the nicotine, right? But it's the tar that hurts them. Right. That's 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 the problem with a combustible cigarette. Nicotine, d- nicotine has pros and cons to it in a medical and physiological sense. Um, it's not risk free at all. But um, if you could, the notion has been if you can isolate the nicotine, hence the e-cigarette and the vaping, then you're going to massively reduce, as you do, the health risk because it's the tar in a cigarette which has all the carcinogens and all the rest of it. That's so you know well documented. Um, and, and so the average cons- smoking consumer um, has an opportunity increasingly to rather than perhaps try to quit and fail or they have failed, but, but to improve their health, reduce the long term risk to their their health by moving to one of these other products, um, which from a public health perspective, seems like and is really a no brainer. You know, our governments, our health ministries and departments, our public health experts have told us, you know, for since, well, depending on which country, the 50s, the 60s, that smoking is bad for you. And increasingly, um, people have been um, denormalized if they're a smoker, right? It's uh, so they, many of them feel like second class citizens. They can only smoke in certain areas, and many of them find themselves outside in the rain and the cold and all of that. And regardless of whether one thinks those are good, have been good policies, effective policies, or bad, poor policies, ineffective policies, the fact of the matter is that the the cultural now and the political pressure to um, reduce smoking is overwhelming. So these products have come along, which which don't promise to turn everyone into a non-smoker, although that has smoke, you know, smoking combustible cigarettes has reduced dramatically where these products have been available. Uh, But they do promise with an enormous amount of evidence that grows by the day that they will massively, overwhelmingly, dramatically, significantly reduce the health, the, the negative health effects um, experienced by a current smoker if they move to vaping or heat not burn products or they start using snooze, smokeless tobacco, etc. Um, so one would assume if one was, um, I think, entirely rational and logical or today you would say incredibly naive that the public health establishment would globally, internationally, nationally, locally would have welcomed these products with open arms, would have encouraged this. Um, and said, let's figure out together how which of these products are best, which ones aren't as good, aren't as effective as the others, what's the best way of marketing them, what's the best way of regulating them, how do we ensure that these are adults-only products, all of this. Now, in some cases, there, there are, there are um, organizations dedicated to eradicating smoking in some countries who have have concluded, often a little belatedly, but have concluded that, yeah, there really is something good here. Um, and we should we should be, um, you know, part of this discussion. And we should cert as stakeholders and we should certainly not, you know, discourage this activity, discourage these new products. Um, we should we should see them as a as a very much preferential uh, to what you know, combustible cigarettes. Uh, but that hasn't happened in many countries. 
And um, if you go globally, you look at the World Health Organization, right? The World Health Organization is the most ardent, old school, not interested in anything that has tobacco or nicotine related to it. They want, they refuse to acknowledge the evidence showing the reduced risk of these products. They claim they're, they're you know, they, they claim, as do na many national and local organizations, that um, parrot the WHO's uh, uh, propaganda that these products are as dangerous, if not more dangerous, um, than combustible cigarettes. Um, and it's all, you know, basically it's all a plot for the tobacco industry to stay in business. So there, that is being that is a huge problem. Another huge problem is that we have philanthropists like Michael Bloomberg and Bill Gates, Bloomberg especially, who spend untold billions of dollars every year, um, for initially against smoking and in favor of all of the most draconian, um, you know, regulations and prohibitions and taxes and all of that, but now have moved into the anti-tobacco harm reduction uh, space. And they claim that, you know, they, they, Bloomberg spends a huge amount of money uh, around the world uh, encouraging, incentivizing in practice governments to, to hold the line against these products. So you have, um, you have government, particularly in the developing world, uh, less so in the West, where our public health establishments can make the wrong decisions on their own very well. They don't need um, a lot of help from, from outsiders or, or from rich philanthropists. But in the, much of the developing world, where there maybe there aren't the, the budgetary resources at the government level, there isn't the degree of expertise, perhaps in some of these areas, that uh, they haven't been studied uh, extensively the way they have been in the West. And so many of these uh, health ministries, for example, or the uh, the national public health organizations, they will do one of two things or perhaps a combination of the two. They will simply take the edicts and the propaganda from the World Health Organization, which has you know branches in, in all these countries, and simply run with that. And everything they do is, well, the WHO says. It's a little like you know, during the COVID uh, lockdown in, this country, in America, where it became a case of, well, as long as the CDC said it, right? The CDC said it, we had to do it. We, we, we were covered, businesses were covered, governments were covered, as long as they complied with that. But if you if you went, a, went aside from outside the CDC's edicts and parameters, then you were, you know, you're potentially a madman uh, and, and a danger to everybody else. The other thing they do is they take the money from the Bloombergs of this world. Uh, and that money is obviously conditional upon them holding the line. So you have a lot of politics. You have a lot of uh, what I would view as perverse incentives at work here. Uh, but fortunately, as my article, which is based on a, a recent report of mine, um, documents, with all this bad news and with the public in most countries convinced because all they hear is what the media parrots, which is uh, coming from the government and the public health establishment, uh, that these products are are as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than the old school cigarettes. And despite all that, there are governments that have allowed some uh, of these products to, uh, to, to 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 have a commercial life and have regulated and taxed them reasonably. Uh, and those countries are seeing tremendous improvements in what we th I thought 
we thought was actually this what this was all about, which was reducing smoking and improving health, health and reducing risk from consuming tobacco and nicotine products. Uh, so it is a good news story, despite the best efforts of many governments and our, our richest philanthropists and most public health establishments. Now, what do you think the future of the tobacco industry is, generally speaking? Obviously, combustible cigarettes will live on, uh, particularly, I think, in the developing world. But mm -hmm. in the first world, it does seem that there is a big push toward vaping. And obviously, I've heard a lot of things about vaping, good and bad, something that I personally would ever do. But, uh, you know, for people who are into tobacco, uh, mm -hmm. it certainly does seem to be better than uh, the, the traditional cigarette. But uh, so where do you think that the tobacco industry is headed? We'll just limited to the first world here because when you get into the developing world right. it's going to be much more much much different conversation uh do, do you think that uh it is going to be uh primarily focused on uh vaping or do you think that's going to be sort of a hybrid for some time where do you think that the tobacco industry is headed i think we're going to see a variety of outcomes uh based partly on country country by country um, outcomes by also uh, this is where it starts to get complicated. It starts to overlap in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways. You know, by by company we're talking about we're talking about the big quote unquote big tobacco companies, but also you see we have this enormous number of um, much smaller companies, particularly in the vaping space. Um, although governments such as the American government through the FDA seem to be doing what they can to put up sort of put up regulatory. Um, fun, financial hurdles, challenges that only larger companies can meet, which is a very neat way of eliminating, numerically eliminating most of the, uh, the new companies uh, without actually saying that you want to do that. But that is the, that is the quote unquote unintended consequence of that sort of regulatory action. Um, but all to say, I think it is I think it is it, it makes a nicer headline if I it would make it, you know, if I say or a nicer soundbite, if I say, well, it's going to be all e-cigarettes and heat not burn and some snooze thrown in. Um, and that's what all these companies are going to be doing. But I don't think it's as simple as I mean, I think some many of them would be happy with that, including the larger companies. Um, one, because this appears to be commercially viable um, you right now. Right, right now you've got um, you've got about a hundred, I think about one hundred twelve um, uh, million consumers of these uh, products. You know, you've got about 80, 82 million e-cigarettes, twenty million um, heat not burn, and uh, about ten million of the smokeless tobacco, and uh, that's only going to grow uh, in practice, whether it's allowed to grow legally or not. Right, and that's one of the reasons that these products are going to thrive because even if Governments, governments who are doing the wrong thing, in my view, continue to do the wrong thing, and other governments who are doing a better job um, turn their backs on progress. Um, these products, just like combustible cigarettes, are not going away because they're now you know, the the the, uh, the horse is bolted, right? And we don't know how far it's going to run, how fast it's going to run, but it's 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 left the stable. And you, 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 to mix my metaphors, you're not going to put these genies back in their respective bottles. Um, so you're at a minimum, you're going to have an underground black market in all of these products forever, right? Uh, that would be the obvious unintended consequence of outright bans and prohibitions. And that is what you are having, and you're definitely gonna have in those individual marketplaces and jurisdictions where that is right now the case or they're, they're sort of edging up to that. Or they, it's these, some of these um, 
activities uh, are legal, but they're so restricted that they are de facto illegal, and yet they're, they're, they're still practiced. Um, so it is going to be um, a bit of a sort of mosaic of, of all of these things. But the tobacco companies, um, there's the commercial, potential commercial benefit in the first world uh, where smoking rates have dropped so much. You know, you're talking now about one in, you know, one in five, one in six, one in seven people smoking combustible cigarette where, uh, you know, well, not you, Joseph, but someone like myself, you know, when I was young, uh, you know, you're talking about one in one in three at least. Right. You know, this is, you know, the love of the last generation uh, in the West, dramatic decrease, uh, which these products in recent years have helped. In fact, they've been the only thing that I, I would argue that has actually that has actually helped. The other upside to the companies, and this is where I, you know, where I think, you know, the self-interest, obviously financial self-interest, but the there's a PR self-interest, which I think is mutually beneficial because it benefits public health, is that these companies, if they move to exclusively or almost exclusively reduce risk products and say goodbye largely or entirely to combustible cigarettes, um, then that is going to help them. I think they think, and I think it's probably true, help them in terms of public opinion and the way that the political class and arguably eventually the public health establishment views them, right? They're never going to like the tobacco industry or the, or the, the nascent nicotine industry, but they will eventually recognize that their products are far less harmful than they used to be. Uh, can still be taxed very, uh, very extensively. Uh, and that will be of some benefit to the tobacco industry, which right now is, you know, sort of, is, well, I mean, not, the tobacco industry isn't viewed perhaps quite as lowly as uh, the average politician or the average journalist, but, you know, they're, they're down there. Uh, and, and of course, governments, another reason why these products will survive, and I think mostly in a legal uh, context is because of the tax, right? I mean, there, you know, there are lots of reasons why combustible cigarettes are still legal. I think there's a lot of good reasons, but one of the reasons, which perhaps is less good, is that uh, you know it's the government that makes most money off tobacco, off smoking cigarettes, right? And in most countries, most of the price is tax, uh, in the, certainly in the first world. Uh, and governments are addicted to that money. It's easy money. Uh, consumers are willing to pay it. Uh, everybody else is happy that they're not paying that that's from their point of view some other sucker is you know paying for the cigarettes just like the people who you know uh, drink the alcohol and uh, and gamble and buy the lottery tickets and all of that um so governments are, are going to as as these reduced reduced risk products grow in terms of their consumer base the tax revenue uh that that uh, sort of catch uh will will increase exponentially arguably over time uh, and so governments want to continue. It's going to be a PR boon for the company to produce them. Uh, and consumers will increasingly demand them. Uh, and so I think they're here to stay. It's a question of how do governments maximize, how do regulators maximize the benefit while minimizing the downsides, not just the downsides to consumers in a health sense, but just the downside generally in terms of preventing a black market, preventing um, illicit trade in these products, the way that governments have produced uh, knowingly or unknowingly a, a thriving, very lucrative and very dangerous illicit trade in combustible cigarettes because of the, the high taxation. Uh, and that, and that, that I mean, it's a real warning sign in terms of what you do in terms of regulation, taxations, more specifically of these products, because um, unbeknownst to most folks, 
what has happened in many parts of the world is that is that um, criminal organizations that may have been most heavily in the drug trade or the trafficking trade have moved massively over the last decade into the cigarette, illicit cigarette trade. Think, well, why is that? Well, it's incredibly profitable. But most importantly, yes, there are criminal penalties that go with it, but they're a fraction of what go with being um, you know, found, caught, and penalized by, uh, by the legal system if you're, a, if you're a drug cartel or, you know, a sex trafficker, et cetera. Um, and also, and the, the um, shall we say, the intra-industry penalties uh, tend to be a little less draconian than in, the, in say, the drug world, for example. Um, but our politicians and regulators, of course, don't learn very, they don't learn at all, it seems. And in fact, they, what they learn, they learn the wrong lessons from their failures. Um, so we can't count on them and Recent evidence suggests most many of them don't get it, but some do. And, you know, so in Britain, for example, as I've said, the National Health Service, Public Health England, um, they're very much on board with this. Um, But you have a country like Australia where you can only uh, only get e-cigarettes if through a a doctor's prescription. Right. So uh, that's the only country in the West like that. Uh, but it, and it's another way in which Australia seems to have fallen off a cliff in terms of uh, regulatory policy and in, in, in so many areas in years. Um, but it highlights the the different ways in which these, if you, if they're legal, e-cigarettes, for example, can be regulated. And they can be regulated in a medicinal sense. They do in Australia. You don't have a prescription, or they can be regulated as they are in most countries uh, where they are legally available, which is as tobacco products, which is I think sort of un inaccurate but also problematic because what comes with that is usually comes with that very onerous restrictions on advertising so the, i mean the whole point of these products is to make them available to people who smoke who may wish to harm themselves less therefore they need to know these products are available and what they can do for them that will benefit their health if you don't if you put the same restrictions on e-cigarettes that you do a combustible cigarette packet um, then you're going to eliminate most of that opportunity to educate the consumer, uh, you know, so, so it's a self-defeating uh, thing. But of course, if you are an anti-e-cigarette, anti-tobacco harm reduction, public health organization or health ministry, then you you do this because, well, you're just trying to protect people. And after all, they're the kind of tobacco product they're produced by tobacco companies anyway. So that's the obvious, in inverted commas, place for them in a regulatory sense. Uh, and of course, you're delighted by the fact that no one hears about them uh, and it all becomes a bit, um, you know, very hard to disentangle tobacco products from these nicotine products uh, and the anti-nicotine products. People are happy about that. So the sensible thing that I argue in, the, in, my, in my article, in my report, is that they be uh, regulated as consumer products uh, with the same, uh, you know, restrictions and requirements as other, uh, as other similar consumer products in terms of risk, et cetera. Uh, but the, the, the risks, the costs and benefits are are available to people as consumers. They can, uh, they can learn for themselves and the governments provide them with that kind of information. Um, so it's going to be something of a hodgepodge going forward. Um, fortunately, the WHO doesn't dictate global tobacco policy the way it would like to. Uh, and one example of how the hatred of uh, the tobacco industry, and I would argue borderline hatred of smokers themselves, uh, can pervert uh, public health organizations' approaches, is to look at how the WHO 
dealt with the issue of producing a vaccine, a COVID vaccine. Because what happened, obviously, the government said, we're going to research this. And pharmaceutical companies said, we're going to throw in all this money and we're going to research. And it was sort of a, a race around the world, who, which company, which government uh, would get there first and all of that. We can all sort of remember that vividly from 2020. What happened also very early, which didn't get a lot of attention, certainly no positive attention, is that a number of two or three of the uh, major tobacco companies said, well, we have all this expert technological R&D expertise. We've been getting into these, uh, you know, th these reduced risk products. Many of them for a number of years have been have been getting into the cannabis space. And so, you know, let's we're going to see if we uh, well, they're on our own or perhaps in concert with a pharmaceutical company, if we can come up with uh, a, co you know, a viable COVID vaccine. Now, I think most of us at the time thought, well, the more heads and the more money, the more brains and the more money that's thrown at this, the better, um, you know, and we can all, we can figure out, governments can figure out uh, when somebody says, hey, I've got a viable vaccine, whether it really is, and we go forward from there. But what did the World Health Organization do? The World Health Organization, which obviously was heavily influential in stopping the world and knew exactly what we should and shouldn't do, uh, unless we were China, about COVID. They said, once they learned that some tobacco companies wanted to research and, and potentially produce a COVID vaccine, this was to be completely cracked down upon. If, if it, ha it happened, it wasn't to, you know, being to be allowed it was to be dismissed it was to be discouraged it was to be criticized no one no respectable public health outfit could have anything to do with a viable covid vaccine if it was produced by a tobacco company now that tells you it tells you a lot of things about the world health organization on the covid front but it tells you most importantly in terms of our discussion right now joseph that the world health organization which leads the world's national governments and public health organizations in terms of how we should approach public health on the tobacco issue will place its hatred of the tobacco industry above any concern real or imagined that it professes to have for public health around the world right um so you know that is the that is the mindset and that that the, not just the industry, but consumers, actual and potential consumers are facing when they are trying to learn about these new products, which may or may not work for them, may or may not be helpful for them. But many who are, if, you know, if you're being a chain smoker for 30 years and you think, oh, is there a chance I could use something and become comfortable with something that would reduce by 5, 10, 50, 75, 95 percent my health risk for the rest of my life? Um, how do I find that out? You know, how do I experiment with that? Um, and to not be allowed that opportunity is stunning, particularly to the World Health Organization. The UN charter mandates, you know, we all uh, have these um, ha have these health rights under the, the UN charter, which includes the right to information. Uh, but that is ignored conveniently on these particular issues. 
And skipping down in your article, you write, my recent THR report pushes back against the criticisms and against the broader skepticism they engender. The report does not attempt to catalog THR's critics and their mostly ill-informed critiques. The case against THR is readily available, easily accessible, and delivered ad nauseum. Instead, this report seeks only to inform the reader that there is actually another distinctive and very positive side to the THR coin. To that end, my report report addresses overlooked and underappreciated elements of this policy conundrum. The report discusses the public opinion hurdle that must be surmounted by THR proponents in order for their political representatives to adopt more progressive and enlightened positions on this crucial aspect of public health policy making. A summary is also provided of RRP's successful yet largely unknown and therefore unappreciated track records since their adoption in many parts of the world. There is an accounting of the many pro-THR governments who have adopted sophisticated strategies and policy prescriptions. There is also recognition of influential public health stakeholder endorsements since THR products became a commercial reality more than a decade ago. The report concludes by drawing lessons from the THR story so far are so that open-minded political and regulatory decision makers may be better guided in their policy making journey and just uh just to uh to clarify patrick what does rrp stand for uh reduced risk products uh, so that covers the the waterfront of e-cigarettes heat not burn products smokeless tobacco products um and you know the research is continuing so there will be branches off of this particular RRP tree, you know, more newer branches, no doubt, as time goes, time goes on. And I was going to skip down a bit to another part of the article. But uh, Patrick, uh, obviously, there is a lot of opposition to, to vaping, not necessarily the sort of opposition I have that I don't like it, and I basically ignore it. But a lot of people are, are quite fanatically against vaping. Now, you've been addressing how there is this uh, profound degree of opposition to anything having to do with tobacco, which comes from certain quarters. But some people claim that, you know, I, I think that the, the argument, and I never really took these seriously, but they, they claim that uh, people can inhale dangerous toxins from mm. the plastic in the electronic cigarette. People can, uh, you know, uh, it's like they could, some people compare it to like freebasing uh, cocaine, uh, where in the you, you yeah. have this thing that explodes in your face and it kills you or maims you, uh, leaving you disfigured for life. Other people claim that uh, vaping is fundamentally no different than uh, smoking because it has the same, I think it's some way, shape, or form, psychological effect. I mean, some of the arguments against vaping do get a bit esoteric, to say the least. Uh, but what 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 do you have to say about anything I brought up and more that relates to the subject matter? I mean, what has happened over the last several years as vaping has become more available, more popular, is that those who don't want vaping to exist um, seize upon... Or, or in some cases, manufacture incidents and examples of uh, mostly technological malfunction rather than a public health problem, um, and things like this, and and su to suggest, to imply, and some people sadly infer that you know anybody who uh, vapes is is, sub is subject to the risk of an exploding e-cigarette, or um, you know everyone's e everyone's vape juice is somehow potentially exposed to narcotics of some kind, particularly illegal ones, 
um, and they're going to become addicted to something else, you know, in addition to nicotine or the massively exaggerated um, claims and assertions about the uh, dangers of nicotine. Uh, you know, that, 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 that wildly exaggerate the downsides, which exist, uh, but make no mention of, in fact, dismiss the notion that there are any upsides, for example. I mean, for example, nicotine, I mean, why, you know, why do, there are all kinds of reasons why people smoke, right? But those who do smoke, one of the, you know, one of the things that they find about it, which is just a medical physiological fact about using nicotine, is that it provides, and it's in the short term, you know, a, a sharper mind, right? You sort of just, it's a, it's, it's a wakes you up, but it also relaxes you, right? Something, you know, this, it's a very nice combination if, if it works for you, right? I'm somebody like you, Joe. I mean, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life because I discovered at quite a young age that I'm allergic to tobacco, right? Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. the, smoke, the smoke bothers me. The sm- like I've, I've um, because of my research, I, I've, I've visited um, tobacco plants and tobacco fields all around the world. And have to do so, as those who have accompanied me will attest, very gingerly and often have to um, go running out because of the, the allergy. Sorry, I'm just going to turn off my camera for a second because sure. I have to deal with a charging issue. And I apologize for this. Oh, it's no problem I, at all. Uh, I will uh, hopefully continue to um, answer your question. Yeah, so sure. I have no um, personal affinity for tobacco. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, where has this gone? Okay. Heaven well, knows apologies. I've had tech. Oh, no, it's fine. I've had tech issues. Uh, on Cato Gottfried, as a matter of fact, Patrick might recall, there was one time when it took like 30 minutes to start the show because I had to deal with a, a never-ending litany of tech problems. So I definitely have been there <laughs> and a half and three quarters. So it's, it's you know, as I understand uh, entirely, these things just pop up. But no, I, I think that the, the whole discussion about tobacco, the industry, how it impacts people, what the public perception of tobacco and the business angle of, of tobacco are, I think that uh, all this stuff absolutely has to be discussed. I'm very glad that we are discussing. Now, Patrick, please continue where you left off. I don't mean to, yeah, uh, to um, distract. So I, you know, I, I, on a personal level, I totally understand the whole aesthetic um, problem with smoking, the criticism of it, and all of that. But of course, this is one of the, um, uh, you know, sort of wonders of, for example, um, vaping, is that there's a there's there's a liquid that's produced, but it's not. Um, there's no evidence anyway so far that it is toxic the way that secondhand smoke has been um, documented to be, I would argue, not anything like to the degree that um, legislation and regulation um, has suggested. But nevertheless, uh, vaping just doesn't have that secondhand problem uh, in smell. I mean, just an aesthetic, forgettable medical, physiological uh, issues aside, aesthetically, Vaping does, is not problematic. I mean, I'm someone, I've been around a lot of smokers my whole life, I've been around now a lot of vapors, and it's a very different world as someone um, who is actually affected by uh, tobacco smoke, completely different world. So it is, you know, it's a great, massive amount of misinformation. And it's it, there's some people, individuals who are just simply frightened um, because they worry that their, their teenagers are going to you know, go f- take up uh, vaping and it's going to they've been told by the, the, the teacher that, you know, this is going to end up killing them just as if they were smoking cigarettes or smoking marijuana or whatever the thing is that's going to kill you. Uh, but mostly this is 
propaganda from organizations and individuals and governments who simply are against uh, against these things. Uh, so, you know, and then, of course, you have governments now that are um, somewhat um, uh, sort of ambivalent or at least maybe schizophrenic is a better way of putting it in a policy sense. So in New Zealand, which is one of the best examples of the success of vaping in terms of reducing um, traditional combustible cigarette smoking, the government there has been imperfect, but as compared with most governments, compared, for example, with Australia uh, across the, uh, the Tasman Sea, that it's, it's been enlightened in comparative terms. At the same time, the New Zealand government has announced that um, they're going to, well, de facto ban cigarette smoking because uh, th there's a point coming up in a couple of decades where if you were born after that, that point in the calendar, you're not allowed to buy, you won't be allowed to buy cigarettes, right? Um, so this is sort of the last generation who will be legally about allowed to buy cigarettes in New Zealand if the policy isn't changed. So you have governments that are very anti-tobacco, anti-tobacco industry, but in the case of New Zealand, actually recognize that there's a huge public health benefit. They sort of, they get the difference. They understand and appreciate the difference. I think that Patrick has been cut off, or maybe it was me. I'm not quite sure. But uh, anyway, no, I find this to be very interesting, the difference between, I mean, obviously the difference between smoking combustible cigarettes and vaping. Uh, and hearing about how it's going in New Zealand is uh, especially intriguing. I would uh, hope that various countries do take, uh, I, I don't think, first of course, I don't think that uh, combustible cigarettes should be banned for anyone, much as I find them to be revolting. But I, I do think that there should be the distinction drawn between vaping and smoking combustible cigarettes. And I very strongly believe that government should not treat uh, combustible cigarettes and electronic ones as interchangeable. I think that's ridiculous on every front conceivable. And it, when it does happen, as we see uh, in the United States to a degree and in some other places, it's driven by emotion and uh, not much else. Uh, so that's, that's, that's my take there. Patrick, please continue. Apologies, Joseph. It's uh, fine. We're going to to worse here. Um, it's fine. Suddenly, we all disappeared on me. <laughs> it happens. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there we are. But no, so um, it's, as, you, as I just heard you saying about the emotional element of this, it's a very emotive response uh, for many people. Um, it's not grounded in evidence. It's not grounded in research. Um, and, you know, these uh, things, two things to stress about these new products are they are imperfect that not only are they not uh, foolproof in terms of they're not, uh, you know, they're not 100 uh, percent reducing of risk, although some are close to that um, and they are evolving. They are being um, not, not perfected, but improved technologically, medically. It's an evolution. Scientifically, it's an evolution, but it's headed consistently in this in a positive direction. Um, but they are also demonstrably very beneficial. And we see that in terms of what it the improvement in individuals uh, own health where, you know, someone who's been smoking all their lives will vape for a couple of years. They'll go to their next check checkup and their physician will wonder what's gone on because, you know, their, their, their vitals as it were are, are so much better than they were before. But then you have in sort of macro terms, 
the population level in countries like New Zealand, in countries like Japan. Japan, for example, is quite tough on e-cigarettes, but has allowed the growth of the uh, heat not burn product, heated tobacco products. Um, and there, you know, that's led to a tremendous, really significant drop in cigarette consumption. Uh, and in, in Sweden, snus, I mean, very few people in, in Sweden smoke cigarettes because of snus, which is dramatically less risky to your health. And countries that have copied Sweden, like Norway, um, have had similar results. But it's again, it's, it's governments that are preventing these products being available and, and consumers being informed. Snus is a great example. There's sort of a carve out with Sweden when it comes to the EU over snus, but snus continues to be banned um, by the EU. The EU is all about improving public health, including, and some would argue pre-COVID, especially on the tobacco issue, but they will not allow snus, which is incredibly successful uh, over decades and decades, demonstrably successful, uh, at improving public health by reducing uh, the smoking of traditional cigarettes, um, combustible cigarettes. So politicians, ill-informed, and um, individual folks who are who are led by you know understandably at times by fear and emotion, mean that there's a pushback all the time, and it's very well-funded pushback at least at the at the national and the international global level. Um, so. The tobacco companies and the nicotine companies, for all kinds of obvious reasons, they have a very hard time making their case. I mean, they have the evidence, they have the ammunition, but it's hard for them to successfully, effectively communicate their case uh, because so many people just tune them out because of who they are, right, rightly or wrongly. And so it's down to consumers and consumer organizations. It's down to private researchers and academics. Um, it's down to think tanks and others. Um, to look at the evidence, assess it, and see where uh, the evidence does support these products. It's not a matter of supporting company X, company Y, or the industry. It's about supporting consumer choice, consumer education, and improving you know, public health. And I'll read a bit more from the article. Uh, skipping down, the evidence in favor of THR as a complementary intervention to help drive down death and disease from smoking is robust. For example, we now have evidence of the impact of vaping has had on smoking. Vaping is today widely considered to be the world's most affecting smoking cessation tool. Skipping down a bit more, Japanese tobacco harm reduction is the story of HTP-driven success. Japan's policies have led to a remarkable drop in cigarette smoking. In October 2020, in the world's largest heated tobacco market, the smoking rate dropped to a record low of 16.7%, down 1.1% on the previous year. Between 2016 and 2021, domestic combustible cigarette sales declined 43%. Uh, this decline is directly attributable to the availability of non-combustible RRPs, mainly HTPs. Uh, and obviously, that's heated tobacco product. Uh, HTP popularity is caused cigarette sales to plummet five times faster than before HTPs were available. Tobacco harm reduction is a refreshingly good news story as detailed in the preceding sections. That is the reason governments around the world are increasingly placing THR at the heart of their tobacco control strategies. And I'm skipping down a bit more to the 
10 policy making lessons that stand out. Uh, I won't read all of them, but I'll read some of them that I think, well, I mean, they're all key, but I'll read some of them that I think are especially worth bringing up. Uh, number one, uh, the first one you put, uh, tobacco harm reduction should be the principal driving force behind a nation's uh, tobacco control strategy. Uh, the debate is not legalization versus prohibition. The latter approach is empirically unsound, unforceable, and counterproductive. Hence, it is a it is crucial that specific regulations and tax policies are THR friendly too. Apply the continuum of risk approach across tobacco and nicotine products. Regulation should reflect the lower toxicity levels of RRPs and therefore regulations and taxes should correspond to the level of harm caused by a given product, hence the need for differential taxation of RRPs. S smokers have the right to accurate information on RRPs, therefore governments should underwrite health education messages about the comparative risks of RRPs. A pragmatic regulation approach furthermore recognizes the utility and fewer restrictions on RRP advertising than on cigarettes, hence reduced risk claims for RRPs should be permitted in advertising. And last but not least, traditional cessation approaches are not the only tools available to help people transition away from smoking cigarettes. Vaping is the world's most effective smoking cessation tool. Fascinating. Uh, and that's the last I read from the article. But Patrick, anything to say about those points that I brought up or any of them that I didn't bring up, please go ahead. A couple of things. I mean, the, the, the continuum of risk, uh, the, specifically the notion of relative risk is so important. Um, you know, any, any of these products will have a different risk, relative risk to one another. Um, and to other and to combustible cigarettes and to other products. And what's so important is that um, politicians first and the media and then the consumers that they educate in inverted commas um, are made aware that the, the product categories are different in terms of the risks they carry and the, 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 the reduced risks that they provide current smokers. Right. So it's important that governments educate consumers of the relative risks of these products to one another, to smoking combustible cigarettes, but also I think uh, more broadly to drinking alcohol, to smoking cannabis, um, you know, to to uh, currently illicit harder drugs. You know, where where do these drug, where do these nicotine and, and heat tobacco products and smokeless tobacco products, where do they fit, right? And I think if you do that, you you provide an education probably also about these other products as well. There's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of ignorance out there. Um, but then you will just reinforce the message that there's something good going on here. There's real potential uh, for progress here. And when we, we talk about taxation, um, one of the reasons I think the differential rates of taxation is important vis-a-vis -vis tobacco, conventional combustible tobacco products, is that smokers these days, in the first world context at least, are overwhelmingly lower socioeconomic uh, folks, right? Uh, they are the hardcore smokers, are more sophisticated and are, are quote-unquote better educated and more affluent. That's the key thing. The higher income someone is, the less likely it is they smoke, at least a combustible cigarette. So if you're going to attract those who are smoking the most, and the longest, who need the health benefit of a, of a reduced risk product, or at least, should I say, the, the, the awareness that that product is available to them, um, one, you have to be able to communicate those relative risks, but you also have to ensure those products are not taxed at a, at a level that puts them out of reach. Um, if they're taxed as much as uh, a combustible cigarette, 
then many many people in that in that sort of consumer category are going to say, well, doesn't matter. And it's you know, I like what I'm I like the cigarette I'm using. Uh, why would I switch to that? But if they are much if much expensive, then there's that much more likelihood that that person um, is going to switch. And I, I think that's really important. And on the the, the last point you touched on there, uh, Joseph, about cessation, one of the things that's already well documented is that e-cigarettes, for example, are more successful as a cessation cessation tool, getting people off combustible cigarettes, than are uh, the conventional um, nicotine replacement therapies that um, our governments and public health establishments really, really promote. I mean, those, the success of those products is is one of the you know one of the uh, the untold stories is that it's not they're not particularly successful, uh, and and many people are more successful on their own rather than with uh, the patches and the gums and everything else. But even if you view those products as helpful, they're not as helpful um, as these reduced risk tobacco and nicotine products. That's now been scientifically documented. Um, so whichever way you look at it, uh, tobacco harm reduction makes sense because it says it treats people, as, treats adults as adults. And it says, look, smoking has existed for tobacco for a very long time. Smoking tobacco and nicotine products in one form or fashion is going to continue legally or illegally. We know there are serious health consequences uh, uh, related to that. So let's not pretend that these products and these these consumption habits can be eliminated uh, either by education or by uh, banning them. Let's rather provide people with as many choices that have a health benefit relative to combustible cigarettes and traditional tobacco products as possible. And let's treat them as adults, give them that information, uh, make them affordable, make them available, and allow companies, whether they're small or large, to profit from improving the public health. I mean, that's really, I think, the fundamental argument here, or at least it should be. And I think the more that argument is made and communicated and understood and appreciated, uh, the more opportunities there will be for public health uh, to be improved accordingly. And the article, once again, is titled A Good News Story, published on the 1st of February of this year, uh, <laughs> published in Tobacco Reporter, written, obviously, by Patrick Basher. Patrick, uh, two questions before we move on to something else. Uh, number one, this pertains to the tobacco industry. What do you think, more than anything else, the tobacco industry should take away from your research? That... Um... They may not have always been on the side of the angels, but they're on the side of the angels now in terms of uh, where consumers want them to be and where politicians and regulators and public health, quote unquote, experts uh, should want them to be, which is um, putting as much focus on these new products, continuing to research and spend money improving the products, developing others if that's possible and providing the resources and tools um, for everyone, an organized or, or, or um, more organic um, way to, to explain to more and more people, uh, whether they're politicians, whether they're bureaucrats, regulators, or ordinary consumers, uh, current smokers, the benefits of these products, right? So to, to more of the same, uh, please, I think is what we need here because real progress is being made. This being in favor of reduce risk products is, I think, a progressive policy. It's a progressive approach. 
using the word in, in the health context in the true sense rather than in the um, perverted sense in which it's used, you know, in, in the Western around the Western world in political terms as a camouflage for far left or socialist or communist or you name it. Um, but this, you know, these are progressive products and we need truly economically progressive uh, regulation and taxation to accompany them so that they have an opportunity you know, to, 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 to thrive and most importantly, to make a difference to the life, the health of so many people around the world. And can I just say a lot in, uh, not in conclusion, but as a little addendum, Joseph, that you've kindly, you know, discussed at length my, my, my article in Tobacco Reporter. But if you, if you're any of your audience is interested in the report itself, um, which has all of the, you know, the footnotes and documentation of all the, the claims I make and, and, and the references uh, that I use, um, it's available on our website at democracyinstitute.org. You can donate, don't download it um, and copy it as you will and circulate it. Uh, we'd be most happy if you did that. And the second question is, uh, what do you think anti-tobacco advocates could learn most from your research? I learned that, well, learned that they're on the wrong side of history, right? Um, when it comes to these issues, that um, they... You know, the, the, the sheet music that they've been singing from um, is incredibly outdated. I think it was mostly wrong uh, beyond the notion that, you know, tobacco combustible cigarettes are not good for you. But in terms of the policy prescriptions, regulatory prescriptions, uh, that they were always wrong, but they're clearly wrong now. They've, they you know, the, the tobacco industry has evolved. There's now a thriving nicotine industry, um, in some cases quite separate from the tobacco industry. Uh, and the, the people involved are not the same people. They have a different mindset. They have um, broader goals. And that the, the, the anti-tobacco advocates are being shown up as being anti-industry rather than pro-health, right? And so this, this, this mantra that they've carried with them that many still have is a quit or die notion. You either stop smoking these horrible cigarettes or we just let you die. And that, that I think, in pragmatic terms, is unnecessary today. It always was, but it's unnecessary clearly today with the new, the tech, how technology has provided these new products. But it's also incredibly unethical and arguably immoral as well. Uh, but that is the approach of the World Health Organization and so many national health ministries and departments and so many um, individuals and organizations within the respective public health establishments around the world, especially in the first world. Um, quit or die. Um, and consumers and voters as the vaping and um, heat not burn and smokeless tobacco constituency grows year by year, um, they need to realize that so many of those organizations and those individuals and those quote unquote experts who continue to beat a drum that these new products shouldn't be consumed and they're as dangerous as the old products, that these folks are not interested actually by evidence says in your health. They're interested in damaging the tobacco industry, probably eliminating it. And they're interested in punishing smokers themselves who they consider second class citizens, who they consider to be unethical and immoral um, by their, their very habit and their very addiction. Um, so it's, it's, as each piece of progress is bad news for the anti-tobacco activists and anti-tobacco philanthropists and anti-tobacco organizations. Um, but, you know, this is a 
th this is a piece by piece, inch by inch battle to educate the public and consequently improve public health. It's interesting to see, obviously, how things have changed with regard to tobacco over the years. Uh, it, it seems, I mean, the, the, basically the arguments against it today are what they've been all my life. Uh, but the, the change has come uh, since the early 2000s. I, when, I was, uh, when I was a boy, uh, it, it was such that people still smoked in public places. There were smoking and non-smoking sections in restaurants. And then obviously that's all gone away by now. Now, especially here in Florida, it's very, very strict anti-smoking laws. So, you know, smokers are placed upon the margins. And Florida... Uh, I don't believe it makes a distinction between people who smoke uh, cigarettes and people who vape in terms of whether or not they're allowed to do it indoors. So it's it's rather interesting to how how things have have gone. But uh, it it uh, I, I, it's tobacco usage will be something that's with uh, humanity, I think, for all time. So the question isn't how to ban it. The question, in my mind, is how to properly deal with it so there is mitigation of harm. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly hope to see a great deal of harm mitigation take place during the years to come. Uh, now, getting to uh, something else, which is not uh, quite as uh, as uh, <laughs> business and economics focused, but it's interesting all the same. Uh, in Chronicles, uh, you did have an article published there this month titled An Underwhelming Hall. Uh, and actually, you know, this does relate to politics, so that always boils over to business and economics. But uh, the, the, the article, uh, it's beneath the headline. It says, despite enjoying a national partisan preference, Republicans were out-electioneered by the Democrats in the 2022 midterms. And then it begins. The co conventional wisdom is prone to overstatement. Hence, National Review's post-2022 election edition lamented a Republican debacle. The Republicans' midterm performance was not a debacle, neither was it great, however. It was decent, bordering on good. Uh, and this is an interesting, uh, this is definitely a, a, an interesting take. I'll just read a bit more and then Patrick can uh, explain his point of view here. Uh, the article continues, consider the progress made since the 2020 election. In 2020, Democrats and Republicans were tied in partisan identification. By 2022, the Republicans led by three points, according to the network exit poll conducted by Edison Research, while the Associated Press vote cast survey gave Republicans a six-point edge. These figures were reliable gauges of the national split in popular vote. This is interesting, Patrick, because it is true what you write, but yet obviously it was not good enough for the GOP, uh, mm. not nearly when it comes to having the sort of performance that they imagined they would. Uh, from my point of view, they had everything going for them until the abortion thing came up. Uh, they really did have a situation where anything and everything that they could have asked for in an election cycle was given to them on a sterling silver platter. Uh, and yet, despite having all of these headwinds blowing against the Democrats, the Republicans still had an underwhelming, to put it nicely, a performance. Uh, and it's quite astounding, especially the economy. The economy, uh, particularly with regard to inflation, uh, in late 2022, uh, started really spiraling out of control. Uh, so that should have, even after the Roe v. Wade uh, mess came up, uh, that, that, that really should have helped the Republicans more than it did. But as we saw, uh, uh, inflation was 
the number one issue, but only as a plurality, rivaling it, and in some states actually exceeding it, was abortion rights. Uh, what I find interesting is that a lot of Republicans tried to somehow blame this on Donald Trump, which is really a stretch to say the least. Uh, it's it's it's, but it's not surprising because a lot of Republicans. Uh, they want to have it both ways on the abortion issue. They want to be able to placate this narrow base of hardcore anti-abortion folks who love having the red meat thrown in their direction. But at the same time, these Republicans don't want to alienate everyone else. So by talking about Trump, uh, they're able to you know, deflect. And I don't think they wanted to talk about the economy too much because to talk about how bad the economy is doing and yet to focus on how underwhelming the Republicans did uh, speaks poorly of the GOP on the whole, not just Donald Trump. So my views on this are quite interesting, uh, but so are yours. Patrick, anything to say about your article or my commentary on the bit of it that I read? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the point of the article is to demonstrate, you know, largely empirically how anomalous the seat outcome was, the results in the House, the House of Representatives. Um, and if you've, as you've touched on uh, kindly by um, reading from the introduction, Joseph, um, you have a situation here where I mean, we don't, there's only been one modern example of where an incumbent president's party has gained in the midterms. And that was George W. Bush's Republicans in 2002, which, of course, came yep. uh, just over a year after 9-11. Uh, and George W. Bush was viewed um, you know, comparatively well at that time, mm -hmm. uh, which may be hard for many people, particularly your younger viewers, to appreciate. But um, I remember it. <laughs> I remember yeah. the election. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> there, you know. But, you know, he was he was on quite a high and, he, and you know, he won re-election also a large part of based on 9-11, his response to it. Um, so it is just it just it doesn't happen uh, that the opposition party uh, doesn't do very well in a midterm election. Uh, first, the first midterm uh, of a president, uh, the midterm of a president's first term, as, as, as was the case in 2022. Um, the opposition party always gains, um, almost by default, um, mm -hmm. especially when, as you touched on, you have a perfect storm. You have a, a, a president with historically low approval ratings. You have um, rising inflation. You have high crime. You have the economy arguably in recession. You have the major, I would argue, uh, nationally, the major, the issues that are important to most voters, economy, inflation, crime, immigration, uh, all overwhelmingly trending uh, Republican. You had regis party registration trended Republican, especially in the swing states. Uh, primary turnout uh, was was um, uh, very much in favor of Republicans. The same Republican lead in primary turnout that the Democrats had had four years previously in 2018. You have a national popular vote, which went from a six-point Democratic lead in 2018 to a th when they gained when they were the opposition party first in the midterm of a president's Republican president's first term to a three point Democratic lead in the congressional election in 2020, when the Republicans gained 13 seats mm -hmm. and ended up just a handful behind the Democrats, even though officially their presidential candidate lost to the most popular presidential candidate in American history, Joe Biden. And then 2022, Republicans win the popular vote by roughly three points. And they end up with a meager nine point um, advantage, nine seat advantage. Now, that advantage we discussed at length, some of your viewers might say ad nauseum, Joseph, during 2021 and 2022, I, uh, how 
the deck was loaded for the Republicans, as I was arguing repeatedly, put aside all those things I've just said about the, the climate and the environment, simply redistricting, gerrymandering, um, the, the census moving more seats to red states and retirements, massive num record numbers of Democratic congressmen retiring. Um, those should have given the Republicans that, that gain anyway. Uh, forget about the rest. That shows how badly it ended up in that regard. So the Republicans did okay uh, in terms of the popular vote. It's a nine point, there's a nine point gain in four years nationally. That's tremendous. And yet Republicans are glum and they're glum because it was an underwhelming haul of, of house seats. And what it comes down to, if you, if you really drill down, it wasn't a national problem. You say, well, it's just, just the way it worked out. It's just a fluke, historical fluke. It's not as simple as that because it wasn't, it wasn't, spread nationally it's you would expect historically that the part the republicans or any party in their position doing better six points better than two years previously nine points better than uh, four years previously what would happen is the republicans would do as well probably a bit better in the safe red states and seats they would do okay probably a little bit better but not anything to shout about in the really solid democratic blue states and seats and that they of course would do disproportionately well this is where they win right rack up a big majority in the swing districts the districts um that trump won narrowly or especially the districts that biden won narrowly mm -hmm. but the results were so different because yes the republicans did fine in 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 red states and seats they actually gained in vote and in seats in blue states like New York, and they just blah, they just flatlined in swing districts and states in the Midwest and even in the South, where Biden just made it, the Republicans didn't just make it, and Democratic congressmen held on. And it makes no arithmetical sense. The only way it makes sense is when you understand how the Democrats campaign. The Republicans, they ran a national get out the vote campaign. They thought it was going to be uniform and even, and it wasn't because the Democrats ignored the red states, ignored their own blue states, and put yes. all their money, time, and resources in swing districts and states. And they did it even more specifically. They did it based almost entirely on the uh, vote by mail, on absentee ballots, on pre-election day voting, those 50 days before election day. Republicans were all focused nationally, uniform on election day. Democrats weren't. The Democrats, what they did in practice was they drowned, peppered, low propensity voters with their communications, text and email and knocks on the door and literature overwhelmingly day after day after day to get people who didn't really care much and didn't vote very often to not turn out to vote, but to fill in or volunteer to have somebody fill in for them an absentee ballot. The Democrats, they could see the Republican registration numbers. They knew how well the Republicans were doing on paper in terms of what their election day turnout might be. The Democrats knew they simply had to accumulate more ballot absentee ballots through the mail than those registration numbers and those projected election mm -hmm. day turnouts. That's Absolutely. what they did. They did it well and they pulled it off. They exploited every loophole, every loss of safeguards and guardrails mm -hmm. on the system for mail-in balloting. And that is how they pulled it off. And that is why they were able to 
um, lose, but lose narrowly in an election which on every issue and every metric historically, they should have been trounced. And uh, I will just uh, say something before I read on, because it is fascinating, your analysis. Uh, you're absolutely correct about how the Democrats targeted uh, certain voters and how they did so in a way that Republicans did not see. And it's nothing that started in 2022. Uh, what happened in 2020, what I read, uh, it was a fellow who was interviewed, a very prominent Democrat in Florida, held public office. Uh, and he was obviously involved with the Democrats' uh, 2020 campaign efforts in Florida. And he was surprised because he uh, he learned that the Democrats really weren't trying to win Florida. Even though they were throwing a lot of money into Florida, they were uh, the national Democrats. They were trying to make it look like they were being competitive in Florida, but they weren't. And this, you know, prominent Florida Democrat was, you know, really, you know, you could tell he was taken aback by it because he was playing to win. But the national Democrats weren't. Uh, and what they did, the national Democrats, was divert resources to Florida so the Republicans would then take it seriously as a swing state. Meanwhile, the Democrats were really working their magic in Georgia and uh, in uh, Michigan, obviously, Wisconsin, so on and so forth, but especially Georgia. Uh, so that's what happened there. The Democrats do micro-targeting. They are much better strategists than Republicans are. Absolutely no question, hands down. You have this you have this very strange situation where nationally turnout was down vis-a-vis -vis 2018, which is the best mm -hmm. you know, comparison year, the other midterm, especially midterm midterm of a president's first term. But it was up in states like Arizona, right? It was up mm -hmm. in swing states. Uh, interestingly. And then you had something else that's quite unusual, is that you say, well, okay, the Republicans just missed, just guessed wrong about who would vote for them and who wouldn't. It's not, not, not that simple. It's not that case at all. The Republicans gained, in all their target groups, they gained massively amongst African-Americans, the highest score ever amongst Hispanics. They gained among white voters and among married women. They gained amongst college-educated whites. They gained among, among um, suburban women. But it where did they gain? They gained exactly. in California and they gained in New York, yes. right? Um, and they gained some in Texas. And that's right. They didn't gain in Arizona and Pennsylvania and mm -hmm. Georgia and Wisconsin and Michigan, right? And so you look at the Democratic vote, the Democratic turnout spikes. It was downing. I mean, Democrats are saying, we had a good election considering, fair enough, you know, reasonable conclusion. Their, their, their turnout was down in California. That's how Republicans mm -hmm. won some seats there in New right. York. New York. The Republicans didn't so much persuade so many new voters in those areas. They'd pray swamp, but not dramatically. It's that the Democrats didn't show up because we'd seen all along in our polls that Democratic turnout was going to be down. But it, strangely enough, it spiked not only in the places they needed it to spike, in those, in those uh, swing states and districts and counties and precincts, it only spiked there. So you have demographically... Similar, in fact, virtually identical demographic, uh, demographically counties, precincts, um, congressional districts and states with very different results. Because the ones that weren't in swing states, Democratic turnout was 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 the same as 2018 or lower. But in the swing states, districts and, and counties and precincts, Democratic turnout was up, even though demographically those areas are practically identical. And, you know, almost identical voting histories. It is, it's, it's a phenomenal thing that the Democrats pulled off. And as you say, Joseph, correctly, this didn't start in 2022. What happened in 2020, which to many of us 
was uh, was ridiculous and mm -hmm. ridiculous the fact that it was allowed to stand but it was and so that didn't discuss it wasn't like oh we almost got caught but we didn't so we won't do that again it was we didn't get caught let's do it again right <laughs> let's employ the same tactics and techniques because the republicans are, are too incompetent to do do that do it themselves and the media are going to look the other way and guess what <laughs> you know uh, it, it happened or it, ha it happened well enough you know, they took a, the Democrats took a very bad hand and played it as expertly as they could in those areas where there was enough flexibility legally and in terms of the, the voter pool, potential voter pool uh, to pull it off. Mm -hmm. And the question, you know, is whether Republicans can once again, the question is, can rep Republicans learn from uh, their mistakes? I must say something before I read more of the article. The issue that the Democrats used in 2022 to turn their base out more than any other was abortion. Uh, I know I, I've, I saw what they sent their their voters, and they they did a good job of it. It was uh, it, they really were able to get a certain segment of their base in areas that uh, that they needed to turn this base out in. They got this base out to the polls, and it worked. Uh, it really did. And I will say that uh, I, I've long believed that Democrats are better strategists than Republicans mm. when it comes to winning elections. A lot of Republicans say the Democrats are so stupid. How could they believe X, Y, and Z? That's the absolute wrong way of looking at it. Mm. Uh, what it is is that the Democrats tend to come from urban areas uh, and suburban areas where politics have always been very cutthroat. So they are uniquely, even among themselves, even if there's no Republican around, they're scheming and trying to find ways to win and being as to be charitable, creative as possible uh, in securing victories. Uh, then uh, the Republicans, on the other hand, they tend to come from middle America, rural areas, exurban areas. Uh, most of the Republican base lives in places, to be blunt, that I'll never visit. Uh, and I said it as a lifelong Republican myself, uh, where life is rather... Uh, I don't want to say, you know, boring is not the term. Uh, some would use it, but it, it's it's rather static. It, it's rather placid. And in many respects, that's a wonderful thing. But when it comes to uh, dealing with pol tough political races, it's a terrible thing mm -hmm. because a lot of Republicans are just used to strategizing uh, to win. I wouldn't say politics anywhere nowadays is a gentleman's game, but they're used to strategizing to win in a way that's conventional, whereas the Democrats are constantly innovating, no matter how unpopular their policies are or how disastrous the policies are. Uh, they're innovating uh, to, to win elections, whereas a lot of Republicans are just much more uh, uh, low-key and they have sort of an expectation that things will turn out fairly because they have faith. And I do want to use the word faith. This isn't exactly a compliment. <laughs> it's an unsubstantiated belief and what can't be proven. But they have faith that everything will turn out for the best. And I, as I grow older, I do see this. I see that a lot of the Democrats are just more, uh, and this is to their benefit politically, uh, cynical. They're more conniving. They are more uh, cutthroat. Uh, whereas the Republicans are more kind-hearted, uh, they are more uh, sweet-natured, uh, they are more uh, willing to stand and fall on principle. Mm. But if you take someone from who has this point of view from the middle of Iowa and you pit them up and pit them against in politics, against uh, a ward healer from New York City, uh, it, it, it's, it's, I, I know who's going to win. <laughs> it's, it's not hard to figure that one out. Uh, so this, to me, is really fascinating. You know, there's a lot. I agree with a lot of what you just said, Joseph. Um, you know, traditionally, and this applies across the Western world, I think, you know, um, for lack of a better term, it's crudely, but sort of conservative, right of center folks, um, 
tend to be um, how they think about politics tends to be more in, in their own heads anyways, sort of rational, logical, evidence based. It's about making a strong argument, right? Putting your evidence together, making a strong argument, communicating that argument. And the best argument, the greater the set of facts will 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 win the day. Right. Um, and then, <laughs> which is which is the way it should be. But sadly, it's the way it's never been. Right. At least not consistently or predictably. And Democrats and those on the left, um, I think, uh, whether it's in the blood or they've learned at an earlier age or, as you say, the sort of the geographic, demographic experiences, the cultural experiences, um, they learned uh, a long time ago. And this is something I preach to uh, candidate clients, parties, anyone who will listen, that it's not about having the, the, the best. The winning argument is not the necessarily the factual argument. The winning argument is the best story, mm. okay, or narrative, as we uh -huh. call it these days in, 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 in elite circles. Right? The best story is what wins. Now, Democrats, leftists generally are expert at storytelling. The story, effective storytelling doesn't require, but it's usually aided immeasurably by emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And appeals to that part of our part, appeals to our hearts rather than our heads. Uh, those on the right tend to focus almost exclusively on the head, um, which largely reinforces those people who already you already have on your side, reinforces their their affinity with you, but doesn't tend to persuade those who are persuadable. Um, and, and those on the left uh, are expert at persuading those who are not sure what to do, but they want to feel good about their choice and feelings over um over facts it tends tends to be a successful political uh, choice although i would say in 2022 and arguably in 2020 as well that well you could say in 2020 the democrats had a story and there's says you know covid uh, you know co trump's ruined uh, screwed up covid co trump's killed everybody um i guess that was the story that was you could say that was their story mm -hmm. but in 2022 they didn't actually even have a story right and and, and their campaign implicitly acknowledge that they didn't attempt to really exactly. push back on any of these issues exactly. with the exception of pushing to their own folks, the abortion issue. Mm -hmm. um, they, to, they, you know, it wasn't about that. It was about the mechanics, yes. right? Again, it was this, this, this cynical, canny, cunning approach that said the mechanics of this election enable us to win if exactly. we are smart in a street level way about it. Mm -hmm. And we'll, you know, we're just going to ignore the other stuff because we cannot compete. But we have enough money, we have enough manpower, we have enough know-how to work the system as we have helped create it to our benefit. And if we do that, as we did in 2020, we can not, well, we can, um, we can still pull off the Senate and we can have an honorable defeat in the House, a manageable defeat. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what they were, that's what they were able to do. So it was two parties running two completely cam different campaigns, Definitely. not in what they emphasized, which issue they emphasized or which personalities. Republicans were all about issues and candidates they thought were good and, and Joe Biden's performance in office. And the Democrats were all about how many of these absentee ballots do we need mm -hmm. and who can we get to fill them out? Or in many cases, who will be willing volunteer for us to fill them out for them? Mm -hmm. uh, and we saw how that went. It, it turned a blowout for the Republicans 
um, in national vote and on issues and on all the metrics that always count the most, it turned a blowout into a narrow victory in the in the House, exclusively about the House. Um, and that is something that, that will only Im, um, embolden and encourage the Democrats for 2024, which means they're not going to draw back. They're just going to triple down Correct. now. Uh, and likely the environment, I would imagine, the environment is going to be pretty hostile to, to Democrats and to Biden or whomever is the uh, running as the quote-unquote incumbent president, may actually de facto incumbent, even if it isn't Biden. Mm -hmm. uh, on the Republican side, they're going to, you know, they, they their only option is to attempt to meet the Democrats at least about halfway, at least partway. And I'm encouraged by the fact that in just the couple of days before we're now talking, Joseph, I see that Trump is making noises that he gets the uh, the problem that the Republicans have experienced with uh, the vote by the mail-in voting and that mm. Republicans have to, where allowed, to get into ballot harvesting and these other mechanisms that the Democrats have just owned in recent elections. Um, and so perhaps, at least at the presidential level, Republicans, the Republican candidates campaign will be more clued in. But whether it's senatorially, gubernatorially, congressionally, Republican campaigns around the country um, learn the lessons of 2022 and um, you know get their heads on straight and become more cynical campaigners and less naive campaigners. Uh, only you know only time will tell. <laughs> and I will get back to the to the article now. You skipping down. You write the Republican small majority in the next House of Representatives defies precedent. Obviously, that's the House that was just uh, sworn A Republican popular vote advantage of a few points, such as we had this year, 2022, normally translates into a smashing victory in House seats. Historically, such a vote margin would provide Republicans with a minimum net gain of 33 seats and, and more likely 39 to 53, depending upon the geographic vote distribution. Skipping down, you write, uh, in 2022, however, a 3 million vote lead netted the Republicans a comparatively paltry nine seats. When all national indicators and trends favor the opposition, political history shows the incumbent party not only loses the election, but loses in a most convincing fashion. In 2022, Democrats confronted a perfect anti-incumbent storm, an unpopular president, a poor economy, high inflation, rising crime, a flailing foreign policy, voters favoring the opposition on the most important issues, party registration trends heavily favoring the opposition, more enthusiasm and stronger primary participation among the opposition party's supporters. So how did the 2022 election manage to defy history? And you were just explaining that, Patrick. You know, uh, what I find interesting is that the GOP uh, you're mentioning that they tend to be more rational in their appeals, and a lot of issues they are, but there's one issue they're not, and that's abortion. Uh, mm. Because I, I have spoken with, with a lot of Republicans who are, you know, practically orgasmic over this matter, and uh, they tell me, talk to me about a fetal heartbeat beginning at six weeks, and I have to explain to them that a fetus is not born at six weeks, and it doesn't make any difference. They're very similar to the Democrats who believe 
that Jim can become a woman simply because he decides one day that his plumbing is different, even though it's not. Uh, it, it, it's that same level of fanaticism and just a total disregard for biology, let alone political realities. Uh, so I think this abortion thing for the Republican Party is kind of like, uh, I, I regard it as political AIDS, as the equivalent of AIDS. It's, it's something on that level that's like this disease that doesn't stop. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really terrible that the GOP has become afflicted with this. Now, some might say, Joseph, well, the Democrats are afflicted with a bunch of terrible things themselves. And I say that's true, but they have demographics on their side more than the GOP does. So really, uh, it's apples and oranges. It's unfair, but it is what it is. Uh, so it, it, it's something. And the GOP has decided, for whatever uh, unfathomable reason, to double down on anti-abortion stuff, as we just heard with the uh, Republican National Committee meeting. I don't know. It's almost like they're trying to lose. Uh, and if they are, I could certainly understand this. But if they actually want to win, then I can't understand it. Patrick, as someone who obviously uh, studies political uh, phenomena quite a bit, anything to say about this truly bizarre turn of events? Well, I think, I mean, where I one, one area where I differ from you, Joseph, and we've discussed this uh, throughout last year is I don't see, I don't believe that um, in macro terms, the abortion issue is a, a net negative for the Republicans. I don't claim it's some massive net positive. I think it's largely a wash. Um, I think it was a wash in 2022 and in 2020 and prior to that, um, this, you know, there are little spikes up and down, uh, depending on whether you want to look at national figures or individual states. Um, it's different when you talk about specific ballot questions and all of that. Um, but I, I don't think it hurts the, I mean, it hurts the Republicans in terms of media coverage and, um, elite conversation and, and perception amongst, um, some parts of the, you know, pro-choice public, sophisticated pro-choice public. Um, but it helps the Republicans in, in other areas. Uh, I think that just as I think, and this isn't germane to answering your question, but just personally, I think that the Supreme Court, the, the Dodds decision was, I think it was constitutionally correct, but I also think it was politically correct. But I don't mean politically correct in the, um, in, in the wokish sense, but it was the correct political decision. Um, and that the solution is a sort of federalist solution to abortion and to arguably to other issues where you make it a state. It's an, you know, it's an issue where, which in our lifetimes, at least, Joseph, is not going to be resolved to anyone's satisfaction, right? Um, and it should probably should never have been a federal question, a national mm -hmm. question. And so the, one of the, one of the continuing decline, there are fewer um, obvious advantages to America vis-a-vis -vis some other countries. But one of the continuing advantages, I would argue, is the size and scope of the country uh, politically, as well as other way, ways, uh, means that these questions can be delegated to the states um, and it's not going to please everybody, but most people over the course of li their lifetimes who have really strong, hard views on these issues, one side or the other, quote unquote, extreme views to those in the middle, um, can find themselves living, uh, operating in a state that is close, much closer to um, their views and their values than others. And the Supreme Court allows that, which is a long-winded way of saying, it's a preface to saying that I think what the Republicans should do and should have done is they should have endorsed the decision, but rather than endorsing it exclusively in terms of, see, we were right about Roe v. Wade, we were right about abortion, you know, 
which many of them, most of them feel, and many of their voters feel, I mean, that's a perfectly respectable position, whether one agrees with it or not. But rather than do that, they should say, this is, this is a good thing that's happened. This is, as I might say, a small d democratic decision by the Supreme Court. This means the people, or at least their elected representatives, get to decide how this plays out. So what we're going to do, state by state, is we'll encourage the legislatures, or if there's a ballot initiative or a referendum, we'll encourage them to go the pro, quote-unquote, pro-life, anti-abortion side of it. And we'll oppose the pro-choice, quote-unquote, pro-abortion side of it, rather than declare... Um, you might say rather than poke people in the eye about it, getting people's faces about it. Now, obviously, if you have a, a really strong ethical or religious or whatever the, you know, the reason that, that, that brings you to that strong pro-life position, then you're going to find it hard to hold back when you feel finally after a great deal of time. Um, and you view, if you think a great deal of cost in, 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 in not just in a health sense, in a public sense, has has gone by, that you you've got to sort of try to capture this momentum, and you feel you feel energized by it, empowered by it, and and sort of ratified by it. But as a political party, you have to sort of step back from that, I think, and say, how does this work best for us? How do we maintain our principles? How do we remain loyal? to our most ardent supporters, but at the same time, not unnecessarily box ourselves into a, you know, box ourselves in and, and, and sort of optics wise, make ourselves appear obsessed with this one issue, which is everything to some people, but isn't everything to most people. And I think the way they could have done that and still arguably could do it is to say the Supreme Court has laid put the, not put the blame, but put the responsibility on the Supreme Court as they've, they've laid out a roadmap here, literally and figuratively, for the whole country to decide state by state. And that's the way it should always have been. That's the way it should be going forward. We, we endorse that, we ratify that, and we encourage it. There should be vigorous debate in every state, blah, 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 even though in many states that's not going to happen uh, because they're dominated by one side or the other. But I think that's the way you sort of, that's the way you finesse this. Uh, it, it doesn't cost you votes and um, which is, you know, it's, it's hard to gain votes on this issue on either side. It doesn't cost you votes. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you can sort of look at yourself in the mirror in the morning as a party and say, look, we've we've stuck with our with our guns. We haven't um, done it. You know, we, we, we haven't embarrassed ourselves or proven disloyal to our most ardent supporters. Um, and, I, you know, and I think that that would, that was what I, what I would advise. And that's what I would advise going forward, which almost guarantees that won't happen. <laughs> well, I'll just say two things before we uh, move on in, in your article, uh, I, 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 and then obviously begin to wrap things up. But uh, the Republicans, if, if they just said, we're going to let this go back to the states, and that's where the matter will play out, that would have been the smart move. Uh, I agree. The problem is that then you had Lindsey Graham talking about a national 15-week limitation, and other Republicans now are talking about if ever they get uh, a, a trifecta in Washington again, uh, they will pass some sort of national abortion ban. So there are always these people who bring up these thoroughly yeah. uh, unpopular, loathsome perspectives, and basically it's like they're trying to do the Democrats' work for them. Then, of course, there is the issue that in these specific districts and states, uh, like Pennsylvania would be the state, 
congressional districts are talking about places in, uh, say, suburban Atlanta. Uh, the Democrats understood that abortion was going to be a very good issue for them there. So they, I, 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 they absolutely used the GOP's position against them to the detriment. They absolutely used the GOP's position on abortion uh, to the detriment of the GOP itself. Uh, the Democrats essentially used the Republicans' rhetoric against them. Mm. And it's, it's, you know, the, this abortion issue, the Democrats are not going to stop, uh, are not going to stop playing it because it works so well for them. And I think the GOP has boxed themselves into a corner where they have uh, a very uh, a narrow segment of their base that's you know single issue on this, uh, and there are less and less people who uh, agree, even in a very vestigial sense, with what this segment of the base believes, uh, and it makes it harder and harder for the Republicans to put together a winning coalition to win uh, a House majority by a decent margin, any kind of U.S. Senate majority, or of course you know getting to 270 in the Electoral College. So this abortion thing definitely is the issue from the lowest pit of hell for Republicans. And uh, it, it's it's a damn sorry sight, but there it is. Now, skipping down to uh, another part of the article, uh, you wrote that in the swing states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, in districts Biden won by less than five points in 2020, Republican support increased very little, if at all. In stark contrast to the Democrats, the Republican National Committee, RNC, did not prioritize swing districts. Instead, the RNC ran an expensive national get-out-the-vote GOTV campaign tailored to maximizing election day turnout literally coast to coast the tangible upside of the strategy is the growth in Republican support on the two coasts in a smattering of new seats especially in New York the tangible downside is that the Democrats successfully defended many Midwestern southeastern and southwestern districts ripe for poaching by the Republicans the skipping down again, the consistent explanatory variable is the Democrats' exploitation of vote by mail, VBM, in some districts in some states, but not comparable districts in other states. And skipping down even more, you wrote polling throughout 2022 found neither the presidential nor congressional records of the Democrats were nationally popular. Only by deploying an overwhelming arsenal of technological and logistical resources targeted at specific districts, counties, and precincts were the Democrats able to neutralize their disadvantage on enthusiasm, policy, and partisanship rounds. The most important midterm le lessons for Republicans involve electioneering and policy. Very interesting, Patrick. Anything to say about what I read in, uh, perhaps about uh, the, the important, what are these important midterm election losses for the GOP? Well, in terms of uh, the lessons, um, one is you've got to get, you've got to get um, dirty, your hands dirty. I don't mean that in a legal sense, but you have to in any given state, you know, you have to take the rules as they are currently uh, written, or should I say currently interpreted. And you have to be prepared as the Democrats, not just prepared for, but enthusiastically do, which is recognize how flexible those rules are and how they can be leveraged and facilitated and exploited. Um, and that means if it's ballot harvesting that's allowed, it means Republicans need to, I mean, Republicans knock on doors and run phone banks but they also need to go into senior citizen homes and they need to go into uh, these kinds of uh, facilities and actually face to face talk to and, um, you know, encourage those people to fill out 
uh, ballots and, and, and move forward like that. I mean, just as the Democrats did in 2020 and 2022, the, the Republicans have to, I mean, Jack Kemp used to say, you know, Republicans have to be in the urban districts and in the inner cities, have to show their faces. They're not going to vote for us unless we show up and tell them, look, you know, here we are. This is what we're in, what's what we're in favor of. We want to help you vote for us. Well, to fast forward to 2022, 2024, Republicans need to be in these institutions and facilities where there are huge numbers of people who are never going to show up on election day, but will fill out or will yet let you fill out a ballot for them and send it in or drop it in, drop it in a box. And Republicans need to show up in those places. Republican campaigns have to be seen there. They have to be heard. They have to be an option rather than these folks. They don't vote or they fill out the ballot or give their ballot to the nice Democrat campaign person who shows up. Um, you know, Republicans have to use the technology. I mean, it's 2023 now. It will be 2024. They have to be, you know, they have to be in on people's phones. They have, you know, they have to be sort of un unmissable, unavoidable. They can't just be on your phone because they want another 20 bucks, right? They have to be on your phone in all kinds of other ways, including and especially how easy it can be for you to vote without showing up on election day. Um, you know, Republicans... There's all kinds of good reasons, which I, I, I agree with wholeheartedly about the importance of a national election day. The reality in 2024 is there won't be a national election day. There will be 50 days, roughly, of election days. And, uh, you know, you, you cannot have all of your voters show up on election day, given that we know, based on recent uh, well-documented experience, painful experience, that there will be problems on election day with voting. There won't be enough ballots. There'll be computers will be down. They won't let you stay in line beyond uh, the judge. The courts won't let the judges won't let the polls stay open in Republican districts, et cetera, et cetera. Republican votes won't be counted. People will either won't be counted or people will just go away. They just, you know, this can't spend 12 hours at a polling station. Democrats count upon count on that. And they build. So they build their election day 50 days out. And they just accumulate ballots, accumulate ballots, accumulate ballots. The Republicans have to accept that as much as we don't like the fact that ballots that come in after Election Day get counted or ballots that are ballots that are that are sent in after Election Day still get counted or that you can cure ballots by determining what the what the voter actually meant and adjusting how that ballot is filled out based on your own sophisticated knowledge of each individual voter's original intent, right? These are things that Democrats know and exploit, and it's why they won in 2020, in inverted commas, and it's why they did much far better than expected in 2022. Republicans have to accept the world as it is in terms of the mechanics and instrumentation of American elections, and they have to take a very quick crash course in how to do this well. They don't have to do it as well as the Democrats. Look how they win or come close to winning without doing any of this stuff. Just bumping into the furniture on election day. If they can get half reasonable, halfway competent on this stuff, they will clean the Democrats' clocks. But they have to do it. There's no there's no getting around it. There's no easy way. They've got to get in there and mix it up with the Democrats on pre-election day voting, mail-in voting, vote by mail, absentee ballots, ballot harvesting. They have to do this or they risk another disappointing morning after, week after, month after, when all those Democratic ballots magically and mysteriously um, appear and are counted.
You know, it's interesting, but uh, because I was going to say it's where I read the last bit of the article, I have come to the conclusion that we're in one very long decade that began in late 2008, and it's continued into the 2020s. Uh, as I was writing on Twitter, if you look at a picture taken in 2009 and one taken in 2023, unless you knew that, you know, unless you're the person who took each picture, you know which is which, it's rather hard to, to mm -hmm. discern one year from the other. Very different from, say, uh, 2009 and what was 14 years previous, 19. 95. Uh, there, you know, it, it's immediately apparent in terms of hairstyles, clothing styles, technology, the biggest thing. And politically, uh, even though there's been the rise of wokeness and the culture war, uh, it seems to me that looking at what we're talking about here with Democrats and Republicans, it's the same thing just being recycled year after year, sort of like a cat uh, or sort of like a, a dog chasing its tail, basically. And there really is not a new era in politics. It's getting more uh, polarized. But what we see today basically are the uh, old unsettled scores of this mm -hmm. very long decade just uh, taking on new forms. And so to think that the GOP is going to somehow revolutionize things on their end to the fullest extent legally possible by 2020. Four, I am skeptical. It really seems that we're caught in a loop here uh, that's been going on since the financial crisis, the Great Recession, and of course, the presidency of Barack Obama. Uh, there was a hell of a lot of distance in many ways between 2000 and 2009, as I'm sure you remember. But between 2009 and today, there are differences. There are maybe different segments, definitely different segments this decade. But it's like one long timeline that doesn't really seem to be getting any better for the GOP, among other things. Any take on my perspective there, Patrick? I can't say I've given that exact question a great deal of thought, forethought, Joseph. But um, at the first blush, it does strike me as, you know, it's likely to be uh, to be accurate, at least largely accurate. I mean, I think back, you know, you think of a momentous, if you put the 2008, 7, 8, 9, period is uh, financially, economically uh, a huge time uh, in American life. And you think back, you know, the depression, uh, the, the financial crash of 29, the subsequent depression, think World War II, things like that that have happened. America comes out of those and it, for, for good or for ill, right or wrong, there, I think, appears probably accurately to fairly quickly be some kind of national consensus about Again, it may not be correct, but a consensus about what caused the, the to happen, uh, what was good about it in terms of World War II, good, bad, who's to blame, how we go forward, who our new enemies are, who our friends are, what works, what doesn't work, that kind of thing. And for another 10, 15, 20 years, there's a sort of general consensus, whether it's heading in the right direction or not, not for the historians and for us to chat about all the time, but that's that sense. But I think coming out of, 07, 08, 09, I don't see that. I didn't, I don't, I haven't felt that. I haven't experienced that. I haven't sort of read that. Um, I think it's, there, there was no consensus except things went very wrong very quickly, seemingly. No consensus really about national consensus about who was to blame, although there's lots of blame thrown out there, what the solutions were, should be. And so the country has sort of stumbled its way along ever since. Um, going in this direction, more in that direction, um, some, you know, some oxes being gored, um, some not, uh, a lot of blame, a lot of victim, victimhood, um, all kinds of, not necessarily directly as a result, but, but um, uh, paralleling that, um, some very weird cultural changes have occurred. 
Um, obviously, the, the impact of technology, um, new political forces coming along to replace discredited ones, but only discredited among some groups. It's just it's been a mess. Right. Yes, it's been right. a mess. Doesn't mean it's all negative, but it's been a mess. There's been not doesn't mean there's been much direction for any consistent period. Um, there's been a lack of coherence, um, cohesiveness. Um, the country is just clearly in so many ways, almost every way imaginable, less united than it was oh. 15 years ago. Right. Absolutely. I don't think that, whatever you think of that, I think that's a reasonable, reasonably objectively, that's a reasonable statement to make. So, yeah, it's. Um, we, we probably are, um, uh, we are sort of our, if you, if we were children or adolescents, our adolescence was, our childhood was, um, was stunted. Our adolescence, yeah. we didn't sort of, you know, we didn't grow through exactly. it. We didn't become adults. So arguably, again, you know, America felt that it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's crazy adolescence in the twenties led them to be, uh, learn the lessons and be adults in the 30s. And then uh, there are lessons, particularly in Europe, that weren't learned. They did crazy things in the 30s. Everyone had that. We, we all had to get into the war. But we learned those mm -hmm. lessons. And then America in the 50s and, you know, it was an adult country Absolutely. again. And we were all rowing in the same direction, blah, blah, blah. And I think there's a sense now that or there's a sense. I think the reality is that America over the last 10 or 15 years has been in this adolescent period. Um, and but I, I, if I can speak dare to think and speak for you, Joseph, which is probably very dangerous for both of us and more painful for you than for me. I would say that perhaps part of the kind of crux of what you're thinking is, is that normally five or 10 years ago, that adolescent haze would have ended either because mm. something just terrible happened that just made everybody grow up quickly or just a sort of natural ebbing and flowing and evolution took place. Um, but as much as bad things have happened in America and around the world, um, Americans haven't grown up, right? Mm -hmm. Adolescent America um, is still adolescent America in 2023 as it was in 2008. Uh, and so that's a, that's a very negative way that we're, uh, <laughs> we're probably bringing the curtain down on our conversation, Joseph. Uh, you've really depressed me with that last question. <laughs> well, but, it's... Um, it it's interesting because I remember when the uh, back then they were all paper, but it's tantamount about the same thing when the uh, stimulus checks came about in 2008. Uh, and then there were stimulus uh, EFT, electronic uh, transfers, uh, ETF, sorry, uh, being sent for uh, COVID. And it, it occurred to me that really not much has changed, not a lot has changed. Uh, and uh, so then I began to think, you know, this is really all the same thing. It's just had different phases. Uh, and it's, it, it's fascinating. Uh, it, it, all technology beyond politics, looking at technology, it's a big deal because I, when I started school in the 90s, uh, we were still using floppy disks, not even the hard compact ones, but like the actual disks that if you bounce them up and down, they would flop in the wind. Uh, and uh, by the time I graduated, uh, smartphones were out. They're, not everybody had them, but more people wanted them. Obviously, they were a big thing. They're making a massive, massive pop cultural impact. Uh, also a business impact. Uh, now, somebody say, uh, looking back 14 years, they've had smartphones all that time. And they haven't seen quite as much technological change as I did. And obviously, technological mm. change causes any other number kind of changes. Yeah. It's not just the technology. But what we have had is this constant repetition 
of political grievances and of cultural yeah. warfare and of uh, di divisions of, of too many kinds to mention here. And that has certainly informed, I think, the identity of people who've grown up since 2009. It's like they're, they're sort of frozen in time to the extent that you can't really tell that picture from 09 and 23 yeah. apart, uh, but they're not frozen in time in that they're caught in a cycle. And it doesn't really seem that things are progressing to me. I actually read an article recently. I forgot where, unfortunately. It showed that scientific innovation now is basically frozen. Science is not coming up right. with uh, new uh, stuff, generally speaking, as it did in the past. And obviously, the politicization of science is a big reason for this. But uh, I, I really do get the impression now that even though time is passing uh, and, you know, politics are changing it's not changing that's going from one place to the next in a linear fashion it's more like just this cycle that keeps going 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 and becoming more radical and more dangerous yeah no i think there's a lot to what you say joseph um it's you know some of the faces and names some have changed but it does sure. seem that we're having you know it's a groundhog day all over again yeah. um circular exactly. arguments to the point where we seem to be unintentionally I, I hope forming sort of circular firing squads right and uh you know whether it's a, a cross uh, cross culture or it's within the same part, political party whatever it is you know uh you were talking earlier about the democrats can have these you know democrats are so vicious uh political mm -hmm. animals that they'll and i would say the most vicious fights are within democrat democratic primaries right um, like the one's going to come up in California that Diane Feinstein is retiring, the, you know, where Democrats have to fight over a guaranteed Senate seat or a guaranteed governor's mansion or whatever. That's going to be lots of fun. But it's going to bring to the fore a lot of these things that you're talking about, culture and technology and uh, and the uh, I, my argument, my, my, my brand new argument about the adolescent nature of American <laughs> culture. Um so yeah, it's um, it is it is quite uh, depressing. I mean, I'm sure we're overlooking all kinds of progress oh. and all kinds of positives, um, but on a day to day basis, it's hard to see them. Um, hard to see those uh, the, 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 those green shoots because, boy, um, it seems to be so hard for the country. The country has to work so hard. Um, at least those who are working work so hard just to stand still. In fact, work so hard just to go just to regress just a little bit uh, rather than a lot. Um, and that's, um, I say, said as someone who has chosen to be here, I think that's even more unsettling than for those sort of native born, um, because not everyone, but many of us who choose to come here did so because the country represented something they thought was uh, different, in, 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 uh, different, distinctive in a, in a good way um, from so many other countries. Uh, and some of the other options that one may have had. Um, and uh, that uniqueness in a positive sense has been diluted, I think, it's not just in the last 15 years, but I would say especially in the last 15 years. Yeah, it's really something else. And I will say this, uh, not so before I ask the last question about, we'll get back to economics and business, but uh, I will say this, when it comes to the era of uh, increasingly negative race relations, particularly between Afro-Americans and white Americans, uh, there are three events that you can really, I think, uh, uh, you, you look at to understand what's happening. Obviously, wokeness and the culture wars, uh, they, 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 they do pertain to these worsening race relations, among many other things. Uh, but uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, the sort of social media mob that goes after people trying to cancel them and using allegations of racial prejudice, uh, among other things, 
the Trayvon Martin uh, incident in 2012 is what was the immediate catalyst for that. And then it was solidified with what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, two years and change later. But you would not be able to understand why there was so much rage with those two uh, incidents without understanding uh, what happened with Hurricane Katrina. That sort of slipped my mind. But uh, Hurricane Katrina started an era of race consciousness, but it was not immediately noticeable because at that time, you know, Twitter was just it, Twitter just missed being around for that, thankfully. Uh, but uh, by the time 2012 rolled around, there was a lot of simmering anger over Katrina, uh, particularly within the Afro-American community. And uh, there was more in the way of what might say white guilt, which also came about because of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, so it, it was it was really uh, the, these three events, I think, explained the sort of uh, particularly unpleasant racialized wokeness that we're seeing, but wokeness, needless to say, has many, many more uh, contributing factors than, than race. But uh, if one is to consider the racial angle, I think that understanding these three events in chronological order, Hurricane Katrina, Trayvon Martin, and Michael Brown, it gets things to where they are now. Yeah. Um, again, I suck a broken record. I, I agree with what you're saying, Joseph. <laughs> and um, perhaps it's the most depressing thing I can say <laughs> to, to put the uh, cherry on the top of the cake here is that um, I mean, I have, and we may have talked to, with you about this before, forgive me if I have, but um, I often find myself in conversation with people here in America and elsewhere who are bemoaning, they're, they're people who are politically aware but don't have a particular dog in the fight um, in a partisan sense. And um, they're sort of perplexed and they bemoan the fact that um, you know, bad things are happening, whether it's inflation or whether it's the, the, the war in Ukraine isn't going the way it's supposed to and whatever crime, whatever the thing is, um, how COVID was handled. And they sort of they don't they can't figure out who's to blame because these things are so bad and so uh, so catastrophic, often so tragic. It's almost as if it's sort of the gods have turned against, you know, us in America or in Absolutely. UK or whatever it is. And I, I stress to them my view, which is. I think what's really important, the first thing people have to realize is none of this stuff was done to us. We weren't, you know, we weren't attacked by the Nazis. And therefore we, this is, you know, we've lost all these people and this happened or there's you know, some, some spaceship arrived from outer space and they gave us this plague and half of us are dead and all the rest of it. All of the things that people correctly identify as serious problems, even crises, that, that are socially, culturally, economically, financially, politically really bad, often tragic, often even catastrophic in some cases, we have done them to ourselves, right? That's the first, so, you know, it's sort of like the, the alcoholic or the addict or whoever it is acknowledging, first of all, that you have a problem. The problem we have to acknowledge is we are the problem. We have done all these things. None of these things were natural, natural happenings. They, they, they weren't fate. They weren't just bad luck. We have done it to ourselves. There's inflation everywhere. It's mm. not because the gods gave it to us. It's just everywhere politicians have made terrible choices and most and often for a long time. Uh, you know, whatever, you know, you name you name the problem. We have, you know, whether, you know, remaking the Middle East in our image. We the all that's come from that in the Middle East here, loss of blood and treasure, America's reputation around the world, all of these things. We made choices, the wrong choices. Some were obviously wrong at the time. Some are more easily discernible after the fact. But we made the wrong choices. And if not, and then secondly, 
first of all, we have to admit we're the problem. And secondly, we have to learn our lessons, learn that we what mistakes we made and why we made them and how not to make them again. We haven't done that either. You know, so you go down the list across all these areas you're touching on, Joseph. And, you know, we are the problem. We have to learn from our mistakes and then we can start doing something positive, arguably. Um, but that getting people to appreciate, I think that's when it's one of those things. It's like if you tell people that, de- you know, the debt is um, 25, 30 trillion, it, it means nothing because they can't imagine that money. If you tell them uh-huh. people that the, the, the government owns a owes million dollars. They go, oh, my God, that's a lot of money. Right. Um, uh-huh. You know, and I think it's I think part of the reason that folks are looking for some almost extraterrestrial out of this out of worldly answer as to why there's a problem in so many areas is because they it, they just the problems are too large to believe mm-hmm. that our experts and our enlightened and our well-educated and our well-intentioned leaders could have led us this badly this poorly right um it's just it's very hard to fathom particularly as you know half of us probably maybe more than half of us voted for him or them and maybe again and again and so you have to accept that you bought you bought the lie you endorse people who weren't up to the job to begin with or that failed clearly in the job and you know these are these are human psychology being what it is uh you know we we find it hard to accept that we made individuals individuals made such mistakes and then that we collectively have made these mistakes and repeated them again and again um otherwise you know there would be ch- political changes and consequently policy changes much much more dramatic and they would the turnaround would be much quicker but it takes us so long. That's why perhaps circling back on myself, perhaps that's why after the Great Depression, after World War Two, maybe there was I mean, the country culturally, socially was more was more homogeneous than it is now. And that helps whatever country you're in. But those things were so tragic, so terrible um, that perhaps that was that size of shock is required uh, to. I mean, 2006, seven, eight, nine were terrible but for most people they were survivable whereas not necessarily uh some of the earlier you know civil war world war ii these sorts of things a lot of people literally lost their lives and maybe it sadly ridiculously unsettlingly it takes that degree of devastation uh for most folks to to realize that you know wow um we really got to change course and change course quickly you know, I, I'll just say this. You brought up the gods argument. And obviously, I'm not a believer in the supernatural, but uh, it is interesting because I can sympathize with it. You, things, as you mentioned, go bad on such a massive scale uh, with so little prospect of uh, these quagmires resolving themselves that people think, how did the gods allow this to happen? Yeah. How did Zeus and Thor get together along with Apollo and Venus and everyone else and make this state of affairs what it is? But as you mentioned, people did do it to themselves, and that is the, yeah. the hard truth. And now talk the last thing today about economics uh glad we finally got back to that uh what do you see happening with the economy in 2023 how do you think that uh the economy in the u.s will function and obviously this relates to how the business community will fare anything to say about this stuff before we go (laughs) i'm well uh i'll continue with my depressing theme joseph (laughs) i i'm i'm quite pessimistic um i mean the the as i read the, the the numbers the country was in a recession in the first half, a technical recession, the first half of 2022. Um, there was l- mild, moderate growth in the second half. 
um, unsustainable, uh, you know, almost entirely government uh, manufactured uh, growth. Um, I think we're going to be in recession in the first half of 2023. I think at the best, uh, best, the most optimistic prognosis would be low growth the second half of this year, uh, very probably even lower growth in 2024. So I think we're not going, you know, are we going to get worse and worse? Probably not because we're spending enough, you know, we're borrowing enough money, spending enough money that in the short term, we can kind of band our, aid our way through this. And those who are doing that are only concerned, as they were only concerned about tw November 2022, they're only concerned about now November 2024. Um, so we're, you know, continue to, you know, push all the bills down the, uh, you know, uh, down the path. However, the, you know, the, there will be serious consequences. I think that the, uh, I think our official inflation figures, which I believe are distressing, are, are very massaged. Uh, and the problem is, is worse, uh, which means I think in practice, the, the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates, probably um, ineffectively dealing with in, inflation as a sort of one trick pony, um, you know, a silver bullet that, that never was and isn't and won't be. Uh, so the housing market, I think, is going to is, is going to get worse and be and be dismal. Consumer confidence is going to continue to be low. Uh, it's going to I mean there there is the one of the wonders of capitalism is that um, recessions do end. Um, that, however, the depth of them and whether they become depressions depends a lot on politicians, most of whom, even if they uh, issue utter capitalist rhetoric, which uh, increasingly few do these days uh, don't act in a capitalistic way so our politicians over the next this year and next year will probably make things worse um this you know one could be optimistic and say in america the republican-led house holds the line so more bad stuff doesn't happen or not as bad but when you see what the republicans agree you know signed on to in terms of the you know the the the, the omnibus stuff between the two congresses um, it makes doesn't exactly fill one with a great deal of confidence. So I think we're not going to see um, the kind of pro-business, low regulation, low tax, pro-competition, pro pro-innovation policies, um, certainly till 2025, and maybe even not then, depending on how, how that happens and whether those who win, if they're the people who are more inclined that way, actually follow through on their promises. So I think it's going to be at best a status quo situation for the next year or two, which right now the status quo is not good. So that's not an optimistic in, in practice, an optimistic forecast. And I think it's as likely, perhaps more likely to be a little more difficult as we go through the question where, where you know, this our conversation has been a lot of um, merging politics with, with economics and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think the, one of the interesting questions, not just for people of the political world, political bent, but for people more focused on business and economics and finance is if I and people of the same view as me are correct, that this dismal situation um, teeters along, percolates along, but maybe gets a little, gets worse, then what does that mean politically? You know, does the rubber finally hit the road? And do we start getting not just political blowback but some of the sort of nasty political blowback that can happen even in america and the social and cultural um ripples on the pond that aren't necessarily very 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 kind to anyone uh, politicians especially um, and that of course 
becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of how business can operate and enterprise can thrive or not or, or perish. And that then takes on a, um, a life of its own in terms of the economy. So it's hard to see uh, light at the end of the tunnel economically or politically, I think, over the next year or two. I think we have to. It's always a danger and it's, it's terribly depressing to put all of your eggs in a political basket. But at the moment, it's not light at the end of the tunnel, but the only potential hope is that there's something of a political reckoning at the end of 2024. But the last two elections in America tell us uh, that that isn't um, that's far from guaranteed for all kinds of weird and wonderful reasons. Although if you look at other countries, especially in Europe, you see that that there can be significant and tangible political blowback uh, when things when the average person realizes that they may not understand all the esoteric uh, answers or sort of say um, uh, rationales and all the details, but they understand going back to our, our feelings over facts um, discussion. They feel that something has gone really wrong, not just with that politician or that government, but with the system as a whole. And I, the fear I have is that the system is going to come under serious threat in America if over the next year or two that the economic and business problems of this country are not um, don't, aren't, that we don't begin to rectify them. Then we have a polit potential political reckoning. Uh, which, you know, as we've seen in Europe and other parts of the world, can only be surprising and counterintuitive, but can actually be quite ugly. Uh, I think that our current era should have a slogan, the 2010s, the show goes on, even into 2024. Uh, it, I, that really does seem to be what it is, because as you discussed this stuff, it's obviously uh, problems from the past recycling themselves in ever more radical uh, fashions with uh, strongly negative uh, ramifications. Now, uh, the last question to you before, actually, I, I, there was the last part of your article I wanted to read, and I'll read it before we go. I, I, won't, I will do the article justice, but... Uh, uh, looking at, uh, how do I put this? Uh, yeah, looking at the labor market, it does seem likely that there still will be a lot of jobs available, a lot of remote work in particular, even as, you know, uh, a recession creeps about. Perhaps we'll slide into one. I hope we don't. But uh, even with inflation and a possible recession, it, it's unique that there are still so many jobs available, not just remote either, but, you know, help wanted almost everywhere you look. Uh, how do you square this with, you know, a possible recession and obviously a very inflationary environment? Well, the assumption has always been, and empirically, it's generally been the case that, you know, a recession is um, characteristic of a recession is high unemployment, right? Um, and as you say, that's not where we are at the moment. Um, but of course, the the low unemployment is um, is misleading, or should I say, it's both misleading and also unsettling in that it reflects a number of things, none of which are particularly good. It reflects, as you've touched on, Joseph, already, the fact that you have many people just not going, willing to go back to work, mm -hmm. um, either because they're not allowed to re work remotely or they simply um, decided that, you know, I'm going to retire early because I'm, I'm able to, or they don't really want to jump into the workplace at a, you know, at an entry level. Um, so we have a labor market which is which has shrunk. I mean, one of the good, one of the positive things that happened during the Trump years was that um, the, you know the, the labor force grew in this you know because the unemployment measures a percentage of those act you know those 
that those in work, the seeking work, it doesn't measure all of those employable people who have just given up. And the number who gave up shrank under Trump, um, which is one of the ways. I mean, previously under Obama, they, the figures looked a lot better than they were because we had less, fewer and fewer people looking, wanting to work. And so the, 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 the percentages looked um, comparatively attractive. Under Trump, more people were drawn into the workforce. Uh, now, we have the, the we're sort of back to the future here. It's an, Biden, an Obama-Biden economy under Biden and Harris. We have fewer people in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so it's much easier to show low unemployment because you're dealing with lower numbers to begin with. Um, And so you have people, you know, some of those people uh, don't don't want to work anymore. Some of them don't want to work under the conditions uh, that their employers now demand, which is to get back to the office. You've got young people who uh, don't want to start an entry level job because they believe it's beneath them or they want to do something more interesting. It's not enough of an experience. I and mean, this is why, you know, the likes of um, Starbucks and other, you know, $15 an hour starting wage for someone doing their first ever job of any kind. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, and they can't fill the, they can't fill the positions and, you know, and you have, you have so many uh, places that are dependent service Business service enterprises dependent on a lot of entry level labor, um, who are cutting hours, cutting days that they are open because they just can't find the people. Um, and then those in work, their their wages are going up, as the president reminds us um, uh, endlessly. But they are falling in real terms because it's great if they go. They went up under under Trump, but inflation was low, so there was a real, actual, real tangible. Uh, increase a net increase in what people were earning and taking home but it's the opposite now inflation is higher than the wage gains and so employers are trying to keep up to retain workers and and attract workers particularly at the low end but inflation is so high that it's it's eating those increases and it's become not meaningless but they're not actual real increases Um, so the labor market is is quite screwed up in that sense and it's being screwed up even more because just as under Trump regulations were reduced and it was easier to hire and fire and just easier, to, less costly to operate your business. All of that, of course, is going in the other direction now, particularly under the guise of, of environmental protection and green energy and all of that. And so it's becoming more expensive to, to hire and keep and, and get rid of uh, workers, employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 hot. These things is, again, you know, it's hard to change things in a good direction overnight, but you can change things in a bad direction quite quickly. Uh, and that's, that's where we are with the, the job market. Obviously, all of the mess that the lockdowns created, uh, all of the perverse incentives and all the weird and wonderful ways in which the job market was affected. And then but you, fo- you don't follow that with good decisions that try to sort of, um, you know, weed out the, the, the bad things that came along, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and sort of get us back on a sane, on sane ground, rational ground. Instead, we're sort of piling on restrictions and regulations and tax. I mean, this this latest um, notion from Biden that um, service workers who uh, their income is mainly in you know, waitresses and bartenders and other mainly through tips that they now must report all that income, mm-hmm. right? Um, these are things that are not, <laughs> they're not going to keep people in those jobs 
or, mm. or draw people to those jobs. And those are the very positions that are the hardest to fill right now, the uh -huh. hardest to retain workers, yep. right? And of course, get, just to segue back a little bit to what Republicans can do um, is if you want to, you know, if you want to get a huge part of the workforce on your side, or at least show you understand their issues, you want to be bashing Biden on taxing tips, right? I mean, it's a no, it's exactly. such a no, it's such a no brainer. I'm sure Republicans won't do it, but uh, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, this is this is a gift from the gods. Talk about low hanging political fruit, but uh. there you go. Um, so it's it's a messed up drug market, job market. That again, again, I sound like a broken record. I don't see any way over the next two years that much happens here that's good. I think we're going to stumble around and bang into the furniture and umanar and wonder who to, who we should blame and all the rest of it because our politicians are not at least in the short term they're not interested in a solution they're interested in who can they effectively blame mm -hmm. right and we know yep. that all these problems are going to be put at the hands of the republicans and if trump's Absolutely. the candidate at, at, the, at the feet of the republicans and the feet of trump especially and mm -hmm. so we just have to hang on uh because the job market is epitomizes the broader economy uh, which is many mistakes have been made. No rational solutions are, are not even being offered. They're certainly not going to be implemented, even if they're offered. Uh, and we just have to hold on. Hang in there. Hang in there. Ah, very optimistic words. Uh, anyway, <laughs> talking about the, the last. <laughs> at the end of our, at the end, at the end of our morale boosting conversation, Joseph, it's the best I could come up with. Absolutely, hang in there for the decade that just won't quit. Uh, this should be very interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, reading the last bit of the uh, of the article, uh, you wrote: uh, consider the calculation performed by Republican Party pollster Patrick Ruffini. He reckons that if the 2022 House results were replicated in 2024, a Republican candidate would win the Electoral College by 297 votes to 241. Despite an underwhelming midterm seat hall in the House, there remain solid reasons for Republicans to view their electoral glass as half full. The conventional wisdom is wrong. The party's future can be bright, assuming its leaders make the appropriate adjustments in election strategy and the candidates present unabashedly conservative platforms. Well, here is actually an optimistic note to leave off on. Uh, I, I don't think the unabashed conservatism is necessarily a good idea in all cases for Republicans. In some cases, it is, I say, depends upon where they're running it. But uh, at least here is a, a positive note to leave on. Uh, so I think we found something, even if it's illusory, at least we found it. Uh, and, uh, you know, like the oasis in the desert that looks to be there, but you can't be quite sure if it actually is there. It's nice to look at when the alternative is admitting you're about to die of dehydration. <laughs> Indeed. Well, you know, thank you, Joseph, for bringing us all down to earth with a with a bump, um, <laughs> at least a cushioned bump in the sand there. Uh, but the key the key word there in my optimistic conclusion is can. Um, mm. I didn't say will. Um, they, they, if they get their, their act together in policy terms, but especially in electioneering terms, the Republicans uh, can do well, I imagine, in 2024, especially if my thoughts about my notions of how the economy will do or not do uh, turn out to be anywhere close to accurate. Um, but it's it's in their hands, which is good news yes. uh, for them. However, it may be somewhat anxiety uh, uh, ridden for their their supporters because uh, recent history tells us Republicans with the, their destiny in their own hands have a habit of letting that destiny uh, slip between their fingers. 
Absolutely, to say the uh, to say the absolute least, that is true. And anyway, everybody, thank you very much for having tuned in tonight. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation, Patrick. I did enjoy it, even though there was some fairly dreary subject matter. I trust you had a worthwhile time as well. Very much so, Joseph. Enjoyed the, all of it. Um, and we must remember, you know, the first half or so, we talked about the positive. Uh, hap the happenings in the world of tobacco harm reduction. So, you know, mm -hmm. if public health can be improved, uh, what we got to do now is fix our politics, our culture, our society, and uh, our our economy, and uh, we'll be set. Uh, it almost makes you want to turn to liquor. Anyway, uh, everybody, <laughs> thank you very much for having tuned in tonight. It's been an outstanding discussion. I hope you feel the same. I wish I had a full glass for you, but I'll raise it anyway. Take it easy. Stay safe. Be well. And cheers.